Welcome to the Gamers Tavern. This episode went a little bit long because we've got two amazing guests to talk about an amazing topic. Adam Jury and Michael Sherbrook join us to talk about cyberpunk. So I won't get too long-winded here, but I do have to announce the winner of the Gamers Tavern Max Sitney contest. As you're probably aware, the winner of this contest gets a brand new iPod shuffle loaded with episodes of the Gamers Tavern. If I can figure out how to get them on there without assigning it to an iTunes account. Uh, Apple products are a little finicky, but it's the best on the market, and our winner gets one. Plus, they also get a copy of Accursed, the dark fantasy campaign setting for Savage Worlds, signed by the designer Ross Watson, courtesy of Melior Via. They also get a copy of Tefra, the fantasy steampunk game signed by the designer, courtesy of Cracked Monocle. A copy of Dementalism, a game of ingenious ingeniousness, the card-matching game set in the surreal world of lowlife, signed by Andy Hopp, courtesy of Mother Oith Creations. A copy of Better Angels, a demonic supervillain game, signed by Shane Ivey, courtesy of Arc Dream Publishing. And finally, a free admission with the purchase of one adult admission to Con on the Cobb in Hudson, Ohio this October, courtesy of Con on the Cobb. And the winner of this amazing prize package is Lauren Lance from Clearwater, Florida. On behalf of myself and Ross, I'd like to thank everyone who entered the contest and especially thank our sponsors who made this contest possible. If you didn't win, don't worry. We've got another one in the works very, very soon. But until then, let's go ahead and get started with the discussion of one of my favorite genres, cyberpunk and transhumanism. So sit back, grab a drink from the bar, and join us at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Did you think the spirit store was only open during Halloween? Well, I've got some news for you. The perfect place for that hard-to-find accessory for your newest cosplay, unique home decor for your LARP, that awesome prop for your D&D game, they've got it all. Whether you're on a budget or you're looking for the highest quality product you can find, Spirit has what you need. Just go to the show notes or to GamersTavern.org and click on the affiliate link to support the show and find that perfect item now. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Gamers Tavern podcast. This is your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. Tonight we have two great guests with us. We have Adam Jury. Good evening, everyone. And Mike Serbrook. Good evening, everyone. Wow, those guys sound eerily alike, don't they? <laughs> we invited these two gentlemen to join us tonight because well, we have a really great topic. Tonight we're going to talk about cyberpunk and post-cyberpunk. I guess post-human, maybe, might be a better term for that. RPGs, which, of course, near and dear to both Daryl and myself, and uh, these two gentlemen as well. But before we get into the main topic, uh, we're going to do what we always do here on the Gamers Tavern, which is we're going to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves and tell the listeners a little bit about who they are and where they might be known from in the gaming industry. Uh, We like to call this your gaming character sheet. So why don't we let Mike Serbert go first. Uh, Mike, what is your gamer character sheet like? Wow. Well, it goes. Well, it's probably a champion's. Yes, it is. Right? It's a champion's. <laughs> definitely a champion's character sheet. And it was first created in about 1984 because I disregarded all my D and D character sheets from before that. <laughs> and 
It probably has really good knowledge skills with uh, about the hero system and champions and designing characters, and with a little bit of a lot of writing, a little bit of drawing, and some web development. Yeah, where does uh, people in the gaming industry where do, where do they know you from? Uh, they would know me from Hero Games and primarily in Blackworm Games. I've done projects for both companies. And uh, some will, uh, may also recognize my name for uh, a few products that I worked on with Fantasy Flight games in Dark Heresy and Rogue Trader. That's right. Okay, awesome. If they want to see you know stuff related to you on the interwebs, where would they go to find it? Easiest thing to do, as my ex-brother Lon say, I have some of the greatest geek cred in the world. You put my last name into Google and I feel lucky and you go to my website. And that's S-U-R-B-R-O-O-K, exactly. Mike Surbrook. Okay. And that'll take you to Serbrick Stuff, and that is a site you have maintained for how long? Uh, estimate 1996 or 97. Probably one of the longest-running sites in gaming and possibly on the web. It is dedicated to the hero system and is often the first stop for hero gamers to find character sheets for just about anything. So 27-plus years you've been maintaining that site. That's pretty impressive. No, 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 no. 17. I think you mean, right? 17. <laughs> Math. Not that old. Math is hard. <laughs> Math is hard. Math is hard. Right, so 17 years. All right, 17 yes. years. Yes. Fair enough. That's still a long time. Yes. That's, that's probably almost a whole voting person. So good, good job Thank on you. that. Thank you. All right, Mr. Adam Jury. Uh, he, he has a magnificent head of hair, I must say. Uh, Mr. Jury, uh, can you tell our listeners what your gaming character sheet is like? Uh, well, my gaming character sheet is probably something like 8th level graphic designer, 6th level publisher. Um, and uh, I'm currently I, I'm the founder and co-owner of Posthuman Studios. We publish Eclipse Phase and the card game Shinobi Clans. And um, other relevant stuff I've done, I worked a ton on uh, Classic Battletech, um, the relaunch of that about 8 years ago, and Shadowrun little bit on 3rd edition, bunch on 4th edition, and the 20th anniversary mm-hmm. edition. And uh, way back when, I started out working uh, for Guardians of Order, working mostly on the Big Eyes Small Mouth line and their licensed anime stuff. And I know Adam primarily as a, as a Shadowrun fan from back in the day, looking at Dump Shock and looking at various uh, uh, Shadowrun website things. You'd usually see a couple of names pop up almost all the time, and that would be Mike Mulvihill and then Adam Jury would be right behind him. That puts That's me in some right. good company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so absolutely, Adam is is extremely well uh, associated with uh, with cyberpunk and and posthuman stuff. Adam, if they want to find out more about you and your awesome head of hair, uh, where do they go to find this uh, on, I, the winter, on the interwebs? I'm lucky because I'm I'm highly Googleable. Uh, my name, Adam Jury. I have AdamJury.com, and uh, just I'm not I'm not the dentist from Seattle. Um, <laughs> Which kind of cracks me up. There's, okay. there's a dentist named Adam Jury from Redmond, Seattle, Redmond, Washington, which uh, <laughs> it was just a coincidence that I love. I believe this is actually you setting up your fake identity for when the apocalypse occurs, and then you can just fade into the woodwork, and everyone will, will the, be looking for the publisher, but not the not dentist. Not the dentist, right. barons. As long as I don't have to be a dentist, because that seems like a pretty awful job. That would be an awesome street name. The dentist. <laughs> the, the dentist. dentist. <laughs> Which, if, if you guys don't know, uh, the first episode's already gone live on the site as we're recording this. We're probably on the third or fourth at this point, but we started a Shadowrun 4th Edition actual play podcast. Oh, awesome. Recently called Game Table. So, so, if you, so if our listeners haven't heard that yet, definitely check it out. And if our guests have free time, ha 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 ha, 
feel free to check that out as well. So now that we've introduced our two guests, we're going to go into our, our next thing, which is now three or four episodes old, I believe. We're going to, we're going to ask you guys for a special thing that we've been asking our, 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 uh, our guests to give us something that nobody else has. And what we're going to ask you is we're going to ask you for the most memorable die roll in a role-playing game that you can, that you can remember. So let's start with let's start with Mike Serbrooks. Mike, can give us the most memorable single die roll that you can think of off the top of your head? My most recent one had to be the double ones from Genghis Khan, in which my opium uh, addict character managed to sleep through the entire fight. <laughs> wow. That was a notice check that went nowhere. Um, I was able to turn it around though, because one of the character, one of my fellow PCs, was trapped somewhere, and I said, "Well, can I meet her in my opium-addled dreams?" And the GM said, "Yes." And uh, <laughs> that—that's a good GM yes. right there. I want to point that out. Yeah, that's that's a really good story. Um, and I was also at Genghis Khan, not in that particular game, but we're going to talk about that more in a minute. Adam, what's your most memorable recent, or it doesn't have to be recent? What's your most memorable? Uh, role from an RPG game. About 10 years ago, I was playing in a Star Wars game using one of the Watsi D20 versions. I had missed the first session of the game, and so my character ended up being like a Wookiee truck driver that they that, that the <laughs> other the other the other characters like had like needed to kidnap him to take his truck essentially in the first session. And so we ro- we rolled him into my character. And after a little while, he, he was the only non-Jedi in the, in the campaign. And as everyone who's played Star Wars knows, that's a really imbalanced. So we, we, went, th- we went through a series of adventures w- where he became a Jedi, m- mostly for the sake of making sure that I could have fun in the campaign. But he, he stuck to using the, the, the Wookiee Bowcaster as his primary weapon, you know, out of kind of like loyalty. My roles in the campaign were uniformly normal, except whenever I used the Bowcaster, I could just not do anything useful with it. But I stuck to it because it, it seemed appropriate for the character. And then in one really big boss fight, everyone had kind of had their turn and nobody had really done any damage to the boss. And then it was, you know, my, my priority came up and I'm like, OK, so I, you know, I take out the bowcaster and I take careful aim and and everyone's kind of joking like and you're going to miss. Right. And then I then I rolled the natural 20 and we won. We, nice. and we won. And it was it was perfectly timed. It was you sometimes you know the, the the randomness of a role playing game does not match the drama of what would happen if you were just telling the story, and in this case, it totally did. So that was amazing. <laughs> awesome! Hey, that is a really good timing on that role. Okay, so last thing before we jump into the subject, we're going to talk about what we've been playing lately, and I'm going to start with Daryl because I think the Mike and I are going to have some very similar things to say. So, Daryl, what have you been playing lately? Well, I've been helping out a friend of mine who is trying to start out a Skype game of his own. He's he's really been wanting to play second edition AD&D, so that's what I'm trying to help him work out the logistics of that and work on his character. He's trying to figure out how to be a cleric thief in second AD&D. That's a tough challenge. Yeah. So trying to help him out with that and with explaining it away in the world they're in as why he's doing that. So that's a little bit of a challenge. And, of course, I've been playing Shadowrun 4th Edition. Uh, we had a game where, unfortunately, Ross was, wasn't able to join us, but I'm sure he's going to more than make up for it in his gaming when he talks about what games he's been playing because he had to miss out because he was a King's Con. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm totally looking forward to uh, Friday when we will resume our Shadowrun actual play because um, we, we need to get more crazy, tiny stereotype into that game. <laughs> All right, uh, Adam. If you're curious, you, I will absolutely tell you all about this this character after the show because he's he's kind of sure crazy. thing. 
All right. So, Michael, why don't you tell us about what you've been playing lately? Uh, well, at Genghis Khan, I played some Hero System, and this meant that I was a superhero, a luchador, and an alchemist in three different games. I also played a lot of Savage Worlds because we don't play it around here, and I, 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 I like it. I want to get a little bit more of a feel for it. So I was lucky enough to be a, uh, a walking dead man, a goblin adept, a drug-addled sorceress, and a couple other characters. Um, here at home, when I'm not at a con, I'm actually in three different gaming groups, and right now we're once again playing Hero System, where I play a wuxi warrior in uh, ancient China, because we tried and honestly gave up on Legends of the Wulin. I'm also playing in a campaign that Ross has never heard of called Shadows Angeles, which uses the hero system. <laughs> the game that will not will die. Not, uh, <laughs> Nine years old and counting. On Sundays, we stopped playing Sh- uh, Shadowrun for various reasons, and I'm looking to return to our Fantasy Craft campaign. Uh, and there's some talk about our new player running some Call of Cthulhu one-shots because he really enjoys COC. And uh, also, the final thing that I'm involved in, which is I'm waiting to get back into, is we play Iron Claw. Oh, super cool. Uh, I'm going to go next just because I think Adam's probably got a, some really cool things to say and I don't want to miss out on him. Um, <laughs> and Michael and I were both at Genghis Khan this last weekend. Um, like he says, we played a lot of, of Hero and, and Savage Worlds. I got to run uh, Accursed there uh, for a group and another guy named uh, David – uh, Weiss also ran uh, Accursed, so we had two games of Accursed going on, which is great. Accursed, of course, is my uh, Savage World setting where Hellboy meets Solomon Kane. And uh, the two most memorable games, I'm just going to briefly skim over them, uh, both actually had uh, Michael in them, so <laughs> that's something to think about. Uh, the first most memorable game was the uh, Widening Gyre, which is a game run by my friend Bill Keyes. It's uh, steampunk it's almost like a steampunk version of Shadowrun because there's magic and stuff involved. And uh, it was so cool. I, I mean, I just don't know how to say it. It's, there's a magical moment where some groups will just get together and everybody is immediately immersed in character. And the story almost doesn't even matter. You're just having so much fun role-playing with each other. And we had that We had that game. Uh, I mean, we did things. You know, we, uh, we fought ninja warriors on top, of a, on top of an airship. We banished a demon. Uh, you know, I invented a heavy metal electric guitar 200 years too early. <laughs> it was really fun. I mean, it, it, there's not much else I can say except it was just incredibly fun and one of those you'll hardly ever forget type games. And the second game was uh, Champions, which was run by Robert Dorff, who is an extremely talented game master. And he was running a game about the Luchadors. Uh, this is where Mike was playing the Blue Demon, and I was playing El Santo. And Blue Demon, El Santo, and the rest of the Champions of Justice had to find a way to defeat a 90-foot-tall vampire in the middle of Mexico City. And, of course, the only way to do that is to combine all the luchadors together into Mega Lucha. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. Stop laughing. We had two it people was awesome. Who, we had two people no, I'm, I'm laughing because it sounds awesome. I, and this were, also was not in Ross's blog about the King of No, Kong, well, so. briefly it was. But, um, well, the game, we but two, not, not the 90-foot-tall luchador wasn't. There were two people who had never played uh, Champions before who joined us, and it's always fun to see people who have never tried something get into it and learn it and grasp it, and you can just see their little lights flick on. like, Aha! I get it! And these two people totally did. And you, honestly, playing Luchadors uh, is not 
real easy to grasp <laughs> for a lot of people. Uh, like I said, it was really exciting just to see them, you know, jump in and, uh, and both feet and were instantly part of it. Um, so yeah, Genghis Khan, fantastic. I can't say enough good things about it. Go to Colorado and go to Genghis Khan if you can, just because it's the best gaming con in the world. All right, Mr. Jury. What have you been playing lately? At first, I just want to say, like, the idea of, like, a whole bunch of luchadors combining into mega luchador. It's amazing. And I have this picture of, like, you know, like, the, the combining sequence. And as they combine, all of their outfits and their masks and capes and whatnot begin to mesh to be the right colors. So that when mega <laughs> luchador is together, it, it looks perfect, you know, just like the giant size action figure. That, yes. that sounds pretty it- sweet. It was absolutely brilliant. We all got our our own chance to individually sort of drive the lucha, the mega lucha, and it was it was great. That's awesome. Unfortunately, I'm not role playing lately. My the group of people that I, I would be playing with, we've all sort of we've fallen victim to the, the real life adult thing. One of us works like a ten day on ten day off shift thing and is rarely around, and so so scheduling has been really difficult. So a lot of my gaming lately has been a little more casual, playing cards games with uh, card games with my friends. And I still play a fair amount of Magic the Gathering, sort of semi-competitively. Cool. Uh, Six Buddies and I, three weeks ago, or late January, we all got in a van and we drove 14 hours to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, to play in the the Grand Prix event. Because there's only three or four Grand Prix in Canada every year. Sweet. So that's, you know... That that's been good times. It's it's different from role playing, but it's still you know I, I think gaming is gaming. It's still there's, gaming, man. Yeah, I I I don't you know I don't subscribe to the whole like oh there's one type of gaming that's better than the other or whatnot. And I am kind of competitive, so <laughs> pl- playing like a like a competitive game to me is a, is a lot more interesting most of the time than just like sitting around and you know playing a game just just for fun. To me, the, the fun is like in the in the competing and in the getting better at things. I think you'd agree there's many different types of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, like I, I, the way I play a card game is a lot different from the way I look at like a role-playing game and play a role-playing game. Those are two distinct right. types of fun that I enjoy for very different reasons. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm the same way with miniature gaming. I'm, I'm a very competitive guy when I play miniature gaming. But yeah, it's a different kind of fun. And, and, and then you're right. It totally counts. I'm, I'm really super super thrilled that you're you know involved in, uh, in Magic. That's something I... You know, I, I've never really uh, been able to grasp like what's 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 so I, compelling about it, but I know it is super compelling. I am ten years clean. Magic, so. <laughs> I, I almost I, almost had a relapse about two years ago, but I, I pulled through. Oh, I mean, the stuff that's been coming out lately has been really good in like theme wise and everything. Um, so that's kind yeah, of the, the current block's like Greek myth, isn't it? Yeah, the current Theros block is kind of like based on mostly Greek myth and with some other stuff pulled into it. And two years ago, there was a a series of sets that were uh, like horror trope based. So vampires. Yeah, that, that was the Ravina, wasn't it? Ra- no, no, it was, Rabbit, it was, something. um, Innistrad and Dark Ascension. Oh um, yeah, that's, that's and the they one. were like the card, like the cards in terms of like playing them and drafting them. That was, it was really well done, but the theme was also very, very relatable. And that, that block got a lot of people kind of hooked back in. I'm just going to do a quick shout out to my good friend, James Hada who is at WotC, uh, hard at work, developing more Magic the Gathering stuff. Uh, James and I worked together back at Fantasy Flight Games, and actually I was James's first introduction to role-playing games through the magic and wonder of the 
White Wolf Street Fighter, the role-playing game. <laughs> oh, God. I remember that. I own that. Oh, man. Street Fighter is, I mean, <laughs> it, looks like, it looks like something. It's one of those games you're like, I don't understand how to play this or how it would be fun. And then you play it with someone, and you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, on paper, this should not work. Somehow yeah, it's like it an does. oddball. It's a pretty oddball uh, RPG, but I, I love it. So there you go. All right. Well, now we've talked about um, all the things we've been playing, so we're going to jump right in with both feet, and we're going to enter the world of cyberpunk and post-human or post-cyberpunk role-playing. And I think we better start out with talking about what those terms mean. I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask Mike Serbrook. Mike, can you define for me what cyberpunk means to me? Yeah, for role-playing. For role-playing? Specifically. Yeah. I think cyberpunk, to me, has always is nested in the 80s. Cyberpunk role-playing. A lot of chrome, a lot of wires, a lot of mirror shades, you know, tall buildings, rains, rain, submachine guns, long coats, fast cars. Maybe it's because I first saw Shadowrun back in the 80s, you know, Blade Runner um, and all that. And uh, also things like Bubblegum Crisis and Appleseed. And uh, a lot of the Japanese anime at the time, I think, influenced... Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Ghost Shell. In the Sh- well, Ghost in the Shell comes a little later. But yeah, a lot that of that, the anime and the manga coming six. out of Japan, really seemed to illustrate what I wanted my cyberpunk to look like. So kind of a combination of the uh, the style and attitude of the 80s, plus a lot of cyber technology and high technology, as long as it's sort of outside the human body kind of a thing. Yeah, something to that effect. Okay. All right, well, that's that's a pretty good... Definition, I would say. Um, Adam Jury. That was. Can you? Def- that was a, Can you define for that me? That was a really Go fine ahead. definition by itself. <laughs> <laughs> Adam Jury, can you uh, tell us what what we should be defining our term as for the post-human or post-cyberpunk RPG? Uh, so when you, when you're going to post-cyberpunk, you are you are looking at something that was started evolving and being created a little bit after cyberpunk and one of the things about cyberpunk is it's a lot of it is rooted in the fears that we had in the 80s that america was afraid that japan was going to become all-powerful and take over that that sort of thing post-cyberpunk is in post-human stuff is like a little a little more our concerns are a little more modern in in what they're rooted in so we are afraid of things like um a lack of network neutrality um and oppressive governments from both sides of the political spectrum. And we're also um, getting a little bit older, so we are uh, getting concerned about our own mortality, our natural mortality. But it's also, it's a little, it's a little less chromed up in general. It's a, it's a little less style over substance, I think, than traditional cyberpunk, in, in both in like the way technology has evolved to be a little, a little more derived from our current day technology. I mean, you can only look at um, like our modern day cell phone compared to, you know, the the pocket secretary in the first edition of Shadowrun, which was described as being <laughs> relatively huge. You know, well, and was it two kilo or something like that? It, it's like something that Zach Morris would be carrying around high school. Um, <laughs> but and, and and don't forget, in Cyberpunk 2020, your cell phone was what three four hundred dollars. Nowadays, you can get them for free. Right, you get them for free as long as you consent to being, you know, tracked by the government and your cell phone company, anyone they sell your information to. But yes, in, in essence, cy- cyberpunk quickly the the technology in most cases, the the day to day technology, got very eclipsed by real world technology. 
Um, whereas other stuff that cyberpunk has posited, like, you know, cybernetic eyes and limbs and whatnot, we are, we're still, those are still evolving. And we're in, proto- we're in prototype stages right now. They have yeah, uh, created right. cochlear implants that allow, that have allowed deaf people to hear. Uh, about last week, I think they had the first artificial limb that's controlled by the brain. Uh, someone someone created a hand that basically a cyber hand. Someone had their hand amputated, gave them a hand that they can, with their mind, not using any muscle control or anything, move the digits on it. Well, I like what Adam had to say about the it being the, the sort of reflection of our fears, of our culture's kind of zeitgeist of the things that we are afraid of or don't want to see. Um, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think Eclipse Phase, for example, which is um, Adam Jury's probably... Uh, biggest claim to fame right now uh, does a really good job of addressing that. Even if you look at it on the back cover of Eclipse Phase, um, it kind of briefly runs down what it's about. And uh, one of the things I always loved about that was it says, uh, death is a disease, cure it. Yeah, it's big on the transhumanism, which is basically taking a lot of the ideas from cyberpunk that they had where like, how much of your soul do you keep when you start replacing your body parts with chrome or everything else? Transhumanists seem to be more along the lines of the soul and it's kind of an examination of is the soul part of the body so if you're completely uploading your brain to a computer server or something like that and getting 3d printed bodies is it still you and that that's kind of the thing that some of the fiction addresses um i don't know if adam can go adam wants to go in a little bit more detail on that and how it's addressed in his game but well no i mean that's a that's a pretty good summation and um that that is obviously in, in most post-cyberpunk, post-human works, that's a core question, is like, what is a human being? And are you still a human being if you are radically modified, or do, do you become something else? And, and we, we use the term post-human to describe, you know, in in the future, the average human who is modified to the point of being a, a, above a normal human, to the, to the point where, like, in Eclipse Phase, there are few people who are not modified in some way. Um, because that's, right. that's just the standard. Although I would say, I would argue actually that the, the whole like, you know, what is human and how far we can we go and still be human? That was, I mean, that's, that's a trope that is true in, in post-human and post-cyberpunk, but it's also a really big one in cyberpunk as well. I think that's, I think it's a, a trope that is shared equally between those two as a storyline, as a something to think about. It's on the back cover of Cause 5. That's actually the question yeah. they, that I asked when I wrote that copy. Right. And it's one of those things that... The big divide for me when it comes, at least especially in fiction, between cyberpunk and post-cyberpunk seems to be the outlook of it. Cyberpunk, almost every single good cyberpunk novel and most of the good games and everything like that, very defeatist. Bleak. Exactly. Bleak. Very bleak. (laughs) Almost all of them end in tragedy or, at the very best, a bittersweet ending. Uh, You can name off pretty much all of them except for... I think you start getting the divide in novels when you get um, Snow Crash. Because that one was that one was almost uh, a parody of it's Cyberpunk still, in a way. It's still a little bleak. <laughs> it, it is. It's not a. It's not a fun world. Except that Snow Crash does is connected to a somewhat more bleaker future because Snow Crash is part of the universe and also contains the Diamond Age. Uh, see, I haven't read that one yet. Oh, it's Snow, uh, Snow Crash on its own is is still a little bleak, yeah. uh, but it's not. It's it's probably a little more lighthearted than it, it paints a bleak world, many. but it's not nearly as the, the, dark and noirish. The, the presentation in Snow films. Crash is not as dark as the world actually is. I think. 
I'd, I'd agree yes. with that. And, it's, and a lot of that has to do with the tone. And that's what a lot of post-cyberpunk has is even though you're still in the crapsack world, it, it's it's not the dark, raining city streets and everything's grimy and everything. Every, a lot of it's a little bit brighter. I, I always point to for the quintessential post-cyberpunk story is uh, Transmetropolitan. The comic book Warren Ellis wrote. Uh, do you guys know that one at all? I know Spider Jerusalem. Uh, that's yeah, not, the one. Not haven't followed that one particularly. Uh, yeah, that's what I, I know. It, that it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read that one in an amazing, a long time. It is an amazing sixty issue. It's basically uh, Hunter S. Thompson in a post cyberpunk world, where everything's bright and shiny on the surface, but the second you even try to look past it, you start to see all the just shit everywhere and how horrible and corrupt and evil the world is. And then you've got this basically Hunter S. Thompson reporting on it. So it's it's a really good series. So that's, that's to me is quintessential post cyberpunk. It's all right. It's a little bit it's a little bit lighter in tone, but it still has a lot of the same tropes and a lot of, and it's a lot more self aware in a lot of ways. Where it's, something that was really unique about cyberpunk uh, as opposed to post cyberpunk um, is that it was like heavily embraced by as a style and i think a lot of this comes from uh blade runner it was heavily embraced embraced as a style for uh storytelling especially visual storytelling in other countries and specifically i'm going to go with japan and anime here anime was hugely influenced by blade runner and i want a neon umbrella movement well it's not just that I, i there are some works of anime that i would say are are almost classics of that particular genre because of how well they did it. And and Mike has brought up quite a few of them, Bubblegum Crisis and uh, Ghost in the Shell and whatnot. Um, possibly the one I always go back to is Megazone 23 uh, because of its... Uh, it, 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 although it doesn't do cyberpunk in terms of the, uh, the body modification and, and the questions about hum, uh, humanity, what it does touch on is that social commentary um, of cyberpunk, which was that... The, the the subcultures were where the last freedom in human you know last the last real freedom of, of human expression was and that authoritarianism was sort of going to be and fascism to an extent were going to be like the next you know the inevitable next step of large uh, political and economic uh, groups yeah big brother watching has always been a theme of cyberpunk yeah, but I think I, even more than that, I would also say that the, the idea that cre- uh, human freedom and creativity is, lies with the subcultures. Mm-hmm. Now, you, d- do you guys disagree with me on that one? Or, I mean, no, I don't feel. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to shut everybody up. I was just like, this is something I think about. No, I'm, I'm sort of pondering your words and trying to think about you know, <laughs> how that applies to my setting. And, and I think in some ways... Um, one of the things that's been kind of emphasized, at least when the, in the play-by-mail when we did that, was the zero zone, the subculture of the lawless zone is where you really could be free and be a free thinker because elsewhere it was all, you know, corporations making sure you were a good corporate employee or the government having cameras everywhere to make sure you didn't act up. And so I see what you're saying. I think that actually goes back to the original definition of cyberpunk, which was, oh, I just completely forgot his name. The guy that wrote Neuromancer. Gibson. 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 William Gibson. Gibson. Yeah, seeing the kids on skateboards skating in the area where it said no skating, and that was his definition of cyberpunk. The subculture was modifying the world to their to what they wanted, and that's sort of what he felt was was the idea behind it. It was sort of you know rebelling against the man, so to speak, but doing it in more creative ways. 
Mr. Jury, when we're talking about social commentary, what, how would you apply that to the post-cyberpunk or post-human style? I mean, I think it's. I think that's probably re- relatively similar. Although, as as you get into post-cyberpunk sort of stuff, like the the snubbing your nose at authority gets more audacious and more out there, because you just have to make a bigger fuss for people to notice it. And so the, the idea that people will always be existing in a, in a places where they are not supposed to, whether those people are you know, skateboarding on somewhere where, where there's signs posted, do not skateboard. But if you, if you really want to get attention, you, you have to do a lot more than that to have anyone pay attention to you, whether that is like the, the government coming in to crack down on you or other people noticing that you are protesting or making some sort of statement essentially because of the way social media will have evolved you just have to make that much more noise because there, there's that much more information flowing and would you also say that post-human and post-cyberpunk style is, a, is that also very bleak or does that change some of that outlook and tone that's that's kind of a, a perpetual discussion you know i will see people say that like oh my gosh like you know eclipse phase is really really dystopian and really horrible and who would want to live there and and that's really that's true in a lot of cases um but i mean i do think there's there's more room for hope yeah i feel that too partially because of like the the accelerated technology i mean technology levels i mean there's more room for hope if you can live for 500 years as opposed to 100 because you have that much more of a chance to break free and make a difference or 30-plus if you're an orc. Right. <laughs> and shout <around. laughs> The short end of the stick there. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, and, and I, I do think in, in general, like, post-cyberpunk stuff is seen as um, a little more hopeful in, in some ways, but could be much worse. I mean, if you are, uh, we, we call them an indenture, and that they're basically character or person who is, they're in debt to somebody, and so they they may be forced to, like, manually mine rocks on on an asteroid for 30 years like that's pretty awful and and you could extend that out like well, what if, what if they end up being a permanent indenture what if they do that for their entire life and because they are in some sort of biological morph they're they're not going to physically die so and their brains you know good forever essentially so there's obviously some pretty horrible things that can go on with you know perpetual life as well and the other high technologies well, I would say, I mean, well, let's let's take that back a little step and say, like, what is what are some of the things we like about the genres of cyberpunk, post cyberpunk, post human? What are some things we like about them with regards to technology? What is the thing that really drives you to it from a technological standpoint, Daryl? I have in my hand right now a Samsung Galaxy S4. This device is about a quarter of an inch thick, three inches wide, two three inches wide, and about four or five inches long. With this device, I have access to more information than anyone in the entire history of mankind has ever had access to at any point in time. Between, as long as you got bars, right? Yep. Between, <laughs> between audio, video, text, I have th- anything that has been written that is not copyrighted is in Project Gutenberg. YouTube is full of instructional videos and everything else. Uh, I can watch documentaries on Netflix uh, from this phone. There's an app that makes fart noises. Why am I not surprised you own that one? I do not, actually. I don't. <laughs> but that, that's my point is 
we're getting to the point where we're living in this world that I have loved. I've always been a big fan of technology. My first computer was a Tandy Color Computer 2. Always been in love with technology. And just the idea of being able to take a cable, plug it into my brain, and just exist online is something that's just awesome. And it's something that we're slowly moving towards in terms of uh, everyone has their little pocket computer with them all the time and they're constantly talking to people from all over the world and that just blows my mind because that's something we were just fantasizing about in cyberpunk and it's something that i've always loved about i'm it's that fascination with the technology and the the kind of exploration of what it means when technology becomes omnipresent like that what about what, you, Michael? What about you in technology and cyberpunk or post cyberpunk? What is that? What about it draws you to it? Um, I think it's sort of the same thing. I think what fascinated me with the cyberpunk settings that I was interested in was a mixture of the technology, both the computer technology, the internal cyberware, and the external technology. Uh, uh, really, I think. Uh, Blade Runner with the flying cars, the spinners, um, the organic robots, the giant airships, the power armor from Bubblegum Crisis, the uh, crazy weaponry that shows up in some of the things. Just, I think all of it. Unfortunately, Daryl kind of said it best, too. I mean, I, my opinion is we do live in a cyberpunk world right now. What we're doing right now, uh, this phone call, the way we're doing it, the way we're recording it, Dropping lines like, oh, uh, yeah, I've got Dropbox. We can all communicate with a shared uh, file system on the Internet and (laughs) dump files to each other. I mean, this is actually beyond even what Gibson was writing about Neuromancer. This is stuff that they couldn't even think of. And we we, we just treat it every day and and look at it and don't even worry about it. And uh, it's fascinating to see that we have this sort of, we have the matrix, we have the the web, the internet, whatever you want to call it all around us. And, you know, every day uh, things get faster, clearer, bigger, stronger, and so on and so forth. And we're seeing this world that we only fantasized about when you picked up the first volume of Shadowrun and they talked about decks and and smart gun links and cyberize. And it's it's coming real as I see it. And that's what I find, you know, amazing. What about you, Adam? Yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of already said it. I mean, the the we, we looked at these like when we started reading cyberpunk books and other science fiction books, they were they were science fiction, and now and now they're science fact, or in in some cases science history. Like I, like I said, we, our cell phones are you know better than a Shadowrun's twenty fifty pocket secretary was described. I mean, all all of that technology stuff is amazing, and we all you know essentially you know depend on it on a on a day to day basis. In a, in a way that in some ways is even more casual than it was portrayed in, you know, some early cyberpunk fi- fiction and whatnot, where it was, it was more separated between uh, haves and have-nots. And obviously, I mean, there's still, still a huge class divide in, in the modern world, but you look at almost anybody when you're walking down the street and they have access to, a, you know, a cell phone, a 3G or a 4G connection and, you know, like I said, like all of the world's knowledge at our fingertips. Um, and there's that meme that goes around, like, you know, that, you know, if you told someone, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, if we had all this, they would, you know, they would have um, been shocked. And then, of course, you tell them that we mostly use it to look at pictures of cats. <laughs> he stole my joke. And um, <laughs> totally true. And, and I have to, I have to wonder, too, like, 
hopefully in 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 you know cyberpunk and post cyberpunk fiction the um hopefully people are doing things more important than looking at cats with, with their lives and I, I hope that most of us in our real lives are also d- doing that too um not that i mean like <laughs> looking at some cats isn't great sometimes but we uh we can't let technology now and in the future become a from become a distraction from humanity whatever humanity becomes well said i actually uh it's your comment also a friend of mine a related interesting story talking about how casually we work with technology and he, uh, he was at a conference i think a java conference and so and william shatner was there and somebody asked him uh you know how long did it take you before you realize the significance of your flip open cell phone and he actually admitted it, you know it was sometime within the past i guess from this point 8 years that he takes his cell phone out and he flips it open to talk into it and he just stared at it. All of a sudden it just dawned on him that he was holding a Star Trek communicator. Um, and he just, it just never realized it because he just, it treated it so casually and accepted this is my cell phone. You know, this is a great case of, of life imitating art, but it's also a case of how things, you know, we just, we just accept it and we work with it and we don't it's not a there's no future shock that people feared about because it's kind of come a little bit more gradually well I, for me i'm going to say like what really attracted me to cyberpunk and to, maybe to a slightly lesser extent uh post cyberpunk post human technology uh is twofold the first thing was i always liked how it gave me sort of a way to a parse kind of like a framework to understand things that in other media would basically be seen as magic or superhero powers like, you know, if in, in, in a fantasy novel, the wizard waves his wand and the door opens or he waves his wand and, and the, the guards come under his control. Well, in Shadowrun, they or, or other cyberpunk games, they uh, would tell you, well, the Decker hacks into their communications and there's an electronic door control, which they can then activate. And it was like, OK, so, yeah, it's it's basically magic, it's basically superpowers. But I'm getting I'm getting a way to to re- relate to that through technology, through things that I do understand in my own physical life. Which I thought was great, like you know the idea of like some guy being a, a supernaturally good shot, where he can just you know shoot anything at any distance, and then you know you look at smart links, or you look at the idea that there's a a, a, a reticle on my eye that I can just you know wherever I shoot I can see that, and again I, I just I'm like oh all right so that that takes that formerly supernatural thing and turns it into something more you know much more real real to me even though it isn't you know real obviously but uh, something more relatable. And, and the second reason, uh, the second thing about that type of technology that drew me in was uh, not only was it deep and, and highly detailed, not only was it uh, you know, a cool way to, to talk, sort of talk about magic or superpowers, it was also something that you could see on the horizon. Like, you know, I've been playing these games since the 80s, so you know, back then we thought Pocket Secretary, that sounded really cool. But you knew it was coming. You knew it would be here someday. And instead even some of, of the of Star Trek with their giant starships and teleporters, this was technology yeah. that we could theoretically see in our lifetime. Yeah, that's it was what, stuff that, that was being worked on. That's the second part of, of what I, of what drew me to that. What that I thought was really cool about that technology. It felt you were getting. It felt like you were kind of getting a head start. That maybe you were you were a little bit of a futurist. You were a little bit of looking ahead because of your interest in cyberpunk and because of your interest in uh, in post-human and post-cyberpunk, you were getting a jump on the rest of humanity by studying where we're going. You feel, to me, I felt like the guy who on the train, you know, looks ahead, see where the train is going as opposed to where it's been or where it is now. 
I would actually say that science fiction has often been a case of people looking ahead with, I believe, what was it, Arthur C. Clarke sort of mentally or describing what became satellites. Uh, and I think there was a story in the 30s that I believe had some sort of, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on, on, on the specifics, but I believe it combined radio and, and the new technology of television to create what could have been an internet back then. And I think that's that's the hallmark to me of what science fiction is all about. It's uh, often looking ahead and at, at what is coming or what could be coming or what could be possible. Be and you know, be it with social issues, tech- technological issues, uh, that sort of a thing. Yeah, I, I just argue that cyberpunk and posthuman is looking slightly more at the, the near future, the imminent future, right, right. The imminent, rather than the far or you know distant future, right? But that yes, but um, yeah, that's and that's the thing. It's also easier to relate to because it becomes something grounded in what we understand. It's not just a wizard did it. Um, you know, it's a little bit more uh, understandable. Has a little bit usually has a little bit more of a physical, practical, realistic basis to it. Well, okay, so we've talked a lot about the kind of what it is. You know, what is cyberpunk? What is post cyberpunk? And what we we've talked about what we like about it. Maybe this would be a good time to start talking about the role-playing games that take these concepts and really explore them. Because one of the great things about role-playing is you get to you know sort of dive in with both feet and become part of that world. Uh, so, Adam, uh, you're probably the best one to ask about this. What are some of the biggest cyberpunk and post-cyberpunk role-playing games that are out there? Historically or currently, or do we want to start at the beginning? Well, you know, let's just say most influential, and, and you can decide which ones those are. Okay, well, most influential long-term, obviously, we have to look at um, Artelsorian's Cyberpunk and Cyberpunk 2020, which are, you know, widely considered to be kind of like the first, you know, pure cyberpunk game. ICE also released Cyberspace, which was less, you know, maybe critically acclaimed and maybe a little bit burdened by, you know, being cyberpunk skinned onto their usual system um <laughs> there, there were still some really important books that came out for that like the uh, the arcology book that they created yes yeah and i think that was probably it, its strength was it, its diverse supplements um as, as opposed to its you know i don't think anybody's still playing that game because it's a sweet game to play um but i suspect there's a bunch no. of their books still <laughs> sitting on people's shelves because they're cool to read and reference yeah, the, so I think it's the Chicago Arcology is the book I'm thinking of. And yeah, they did have some strong supplements, but the core game, yeah, not so much. Um, and I think that's that's kind of a thing. It was 89 and 88 when we got Cyberpunk, Shadowrun, and Cyberspace, all that pretty much within a year of each other. Yeah, and of course, then there's Shadowrun, which is hugely influential, and probably in terms of sales and people playing it, the most popular cyberpunk game ever. Even though it's... Well, Shadowrun had some additions on top of Cyberpunk. People would be like, is Shadowrun a Cyberpunk game? And it's like, yeah, of course it is. And then it has other stuff on top of it. Yeah, which is the traditional fantasy tropes and, and magic. Right, and, and as, as they play into the setting, they are treated the way other things would be treated with, within the setting in that, you know, the, the different meta races and, and magic, those, those deal with Cyberpunk issues like, you know, alienation, racism... All that sort of stuff, too. I mean, I, th- I think they tie in relatively well in that they're not just they're just not tacked on top of a cyberpunk setting, in my opinion. No, I, I, that's the strength of Shadowrun is it embraces it and makes it part of it rather than just makes it a layer on top. I yeah, it's, it's not just like a 
they're not just skinned on top of it for the sake of having cool meta races. They are they are integral to the way the story is presented. Yeah, and I would definitely say, uh, for example, my the vast majority of my uh, cyberpunk role playing history uh, would would have to be Shadowrun. I've I've only ever played like one game. I think of uh, Cyberpunk twenty twenty as as comparison, and and none at all of cyberspace. <laughs> And I've been playing for over 30 years, so... Yeah, I definitely came into Cyberpunk Gaming through Shadowrun and then exposed myself to all the other things as kind of a compare and contrast and companion to it. I do love exposing myself. I mean, you know, to playing games. <laughs> mm. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't see that video cast. <laughs> do I have to subscribe? No, 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 no. We all... The Shadowrun love of the two hosts of this particular podcast is well documented, and we've, we've <laughs> dedicated a whole episode to it already. So before we, you know, rather than, than get too much into that, I do want to take just a quick moment to say um, to Adam, thank you very much f- for producing so much high-quality content for Shadowrun. As a fan, uh, I am incredibly grateful for all the creativity and uh, skill that you put into it. Oh. Uh, and particularly, uh, if I ever get a chance to talk to you again, I'd love to have you sign my 4th edition Shadowrun game. Uh, while no game is perfect and 4th edition has its share of, uh, of, of of maybe problem spots, it's a really, really good game. Oh. It's a fantastic game. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I worked on a bunch of Shadowrun stuff, and obviously, you know, there's a lot of, you know, effort and, and you know, creativity and went into it. But um, I, was always, I was always working with a great team of people, and I was, I was very rarely steering the ship. So... The people who were steering the ship, notably uh, Rob Boyle, Peter Taylor, um, Jason Hardy, they all deserve a whole lot of praise for what's been going on with Shadowrun. All right. So, yes, Shadowrun, one of the biggest ones. Uh, for the post-human or post-cyberpunk movement, I think we have to touch on Eclipse Phase. Yeah, in, in, the, in the terms of post... It's the flag carrier of that movement, I would I say. Gu- I, I guess we are. I guess it is. Yeah, and other games uh, within that... There's um, wow! I just drew a complete mental blank. There's a trans, there's a transhuman <laughs> fate-based. GURPS transhuman space. Uh, yeah, yeah. GURPS transhuman space would actually be a better place to start because it was obviously quite popular. They have a huge amount of supplements for it, and they're they're still putting stuff out. It has a its setting is 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 really quite different from Eclipse Phase, which is intentional, but also I I think that I think that goes well to show like how how much variety there is in post-cyberpunk setting building and fiction, and how, how much room there is to customize things to what you are interested in or what you want. Uh, okay, but to, you know, I, I, I definitely want to talk about Eclipse Phase because you are the kind of head guru. Weren't you, were you, you know, tell us about Eclipse Phase and your involvement in it. Let's go, let's start there. Okay, uh, it started in a bar, as usual. For the, as most good games do. As, as, we as you games. do. Um, actually, Eclipse Phase started when we were um, beginning the work on Shadowrun 4th Edition. And we were trying to decide what we were doing with 4th Edition. And we had a, a variety of options, because w- one of them which was just continue Shadowrun with the timeline as it stood, the technology as it stood. Um, and the other was the the option that we ended up going with, which was jump the timeline a little bit forward so we could tweak the technology and the setting a little bit to kind of modernize Shadowrun a little bit. You know, again, get rid of the giant cyberdex and pocket secretaries and whatnot. And the third option was radically jump 
the Shadowrun timeline ahead and, and heavily revised the setting in, into more of a post-cyberpunk game. Um, and we ended up not doing that because, number one, we thought that um, it would never get approved by uh, WizKids, who, who owned it at the first time. And also, it was a really huge risk to take a well-loved game and change it drastically. Um, so we ended up going with the, the kind of 2070 4th edition Shadowrun setting, and then we began developing it, um, the, the future Shadowrun game as Eclipse Phase on its own, um, but untied to the IP because it didn't make sense to also design a huge brand new game uh, and have Shadowrun on the, the label for brand recognition purposes, and, which would also mean that we would have to sign the whole thing over to WizKids and they would own it. And we, we were not interested in that. No. Now, who was the main creative force behind Eclipse Phase? Was that you? N- no. I mean, I, w- I was involved, but the primary creators would be uh, Rob Boyle, Brian Cross, and... Jack Graham also really heavily involved, and actually, last year Jack Graham ended up joining Posthuman Studios as a as an owner. Sweet, yeah, and, and that's that's been very good for us having Jack on board to do a lot, doing a lot more work. He's been e- easing the development workload, and ho- hopefully, we're going to be seeing the fruits of that really soon. Now, let me say as a as a guy who you know looks at at the things that come out from your creators like yourself, uh, it was really interesting. I think it was two thousand nine when this book first came out. That sounds right to me. It's a little foggy. I remember seeing this book, and, and it has this really fantastic title. It has a really interesting you know, cover on it. And then you flip it on the back, and you're like, okay, so what is it about? And it has these four lines that are, well, it, you know, four, four, four lines that are, that are two sentences each. And it's just brilliant because it nailed exactly what it's about. And whoever wrote your back cover copy should, should get an award because it's freaking awesome. So when you flip over the book of Eclipse Phase, you read the following. Your mind is software, program it. Your body is a shell, change it. Death is a disease, cure it. Extinction is approaching, fight it. To me, that's brilliant. I, I just I think that's that's fantastic I'm way sold. to sum up <laughs> sum up what your game is about. Well, thank you. Um, that that text, by the way, that is Rob Boyle wrote that based on a first version of it that was suggested by uh, freelancer Malcolm Shepard. His version was a little bit different, and I, I don't remember it off the top of my head. But Rob was like, I like how that sounds. Let, let's tweak it a little bit. Well, Rob's got good instincts, because that's pretty badass. <laughs> <laughs> he, he does. We also, all, all of us hate writing back cover copy. As we were talking about things, we'd be like, wouldn't it be sweet if we, we didn't have to write three paragraphs on the back of the book? Like, what, what, what can we do that's cool, that is still you know oh, evocative because i mean when somebody looks at your book the cover the back cover you don't want them to stop there you want them to be like that's interesting like i want to see some more you want to you yeah. want to make sure that everyone that holds your book or sees your book opens it up yeah it's tantalizing the back cover supposed to tantalize yeah and, and I, I think i think that sort of that style of copy does a little bit more than that as, as opposed to the more traditional Here's a paragraph about the setting, here's a paragraph about the rules, and here's a paragraph that tells you about the book, you know? Yeah, even even with The Cursed, which is my most recent project, I wrote the back cover text, and it took me two or three paragraphs uh, to write that out. And that's just the way I've been doing it since, you know, all of my 40K roleplay books are like that. They have, you know, two or three paragraphs in the back to tell you what it's about. And, uh, you know, just hearing you say that now, we were trying to do something different. I'm like, yeah, well, you succeeded, um, and you succeeded wildly. Like, so, 
you know, and, and I, I hope our listeners aren't too bored about two publishers talking about <laughs> back, how to write back cover text. But well, anyway, I, I mean, like, it, I mean, you can extend that out to a lot more than back cover text. Sure. A lot of times, RPGs are written and presented in a way not because it was consciously chosen that that would be the way that it should be written and presented, but because air quotes, that's how we've always done it. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that's how we've always done it is eventually you've always done it for so long that you forget the original reasons why it was done that way. Exhibit A for the, the prosecution is Palladium Books. <laughs> All right. No, no, they, they, uh, they still do it that way because that's the best way. <laughs> All right. Uh, Man, I would, total tangent here, I would love to do like a full hardcover, full color representation of Rifts. Oh, you and me both, buddy. I mean, I, you and, and me both. I don't have a whole lot. Like, I don't have a whole lot of like fond teenage remembrances of Rifts, although it did get played. But I think taking that book and making it look like a 2015 book, 2016 book at this rate, I think that would... I, I think about th- two or three weeks ago, Ross said almost those exact same words. Well, Adam and I are both guys who really enjoy making a book look pretty. We're both guys who uh, have some, you know, pretty strong backgrounds in uh layout and craft design and things and we're both looking at riffs and going man wouldn't that be great (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i agree and i mean and i also i think it would be a really interesting challenge to take like a beloved game and really like radically update it but also keep it grounded in what the people who already love it well Let's not drift too far away. Let's uh, let's go back to Eclipse Phase, and why don't you tell the listeners what it, I mean? I, we talked about the back cover. What is it about from your your mouth when you describe Eclipse Phase? So, I mean, Eclipse Phase is a game where technology has advanced to the point where your mind can be digitized and backed up, um, and that post singularity. Yes, it's post singularity. Technology is adven- advanced far beyond our current technology, and the great thing about if your mind can be backed up we can do three really important things. Um, Number one is if your physical body dies, your brain and your memories and everything you know does not. It's backed up somewhere. So you can be put into a new body and you are thus effectively immortal. And your new body would be called a morph. And that's the second important thing is you can willingly move between different morphs. So if you, you may have morphs that are suitable for your your character as a combatant, and you may have one that is su- suited for your character being a high-stakes negotiator as well. And the third thing is your consciousness, your ego, can be uploaded to another location, or what we call ego cast. And that means that you do not have to um, sit on a spaceship for years traveling somewhere. You can be uploaded somewhere else put into a new morph and then you can go about your business whatever your business may be um and your typical business as a character in eclipse phase is you are a member of firewall and firewall is essentially a uh an organization of anonymous people who are trying to keep the uh transhumanity posthumanity safe from everything that may threaten them uh in the solar system okay that's a that's very good Eclipse Phase, one thing I have to say to listeners, uh, one thing I, I think is great about Eclipse Phase is that you guys embraced not only presenting the future in the way that you read the book and in the way you play the game, you've embraced it in the way that you get people to the game. And I'm going to point out two things with that. Number one is 
if you want to buy Eclipse Phase at, say, Gen Con or something, you can walk up and buy the physical copy. But you can also, and this is what I think is great about a game about the future, you can also buy everything on PDF on a Eclipse Phase uh, key drive, a USB drive, and just walk away with the whole thing, uh, which I have done, by the way. Yeah, we only kind of do that as a special bonus thing. But it's awesome. But, but it's but, awesome that that is a, a game about the future where I can buy it like I'm in the future. Right, and and, you know and, <laughs> and I believe that if you want to sell somebody something nowadays, you have to sell it to them in the format that they want it. People are like, well, can I get everything at once? Like, how do you make it really easy? How do you make it as accessible as possible? And so, yeah, you've, you've, you've got to kind of embrace that kind of thing. You, you can't be like, well... We're selling it as a hardcover book only because I really like how hardcover books look. Well, well there's that's a, sweet that you really like how hardcover books look, but not everybody is you. And the second part of that is the kind of unique nature in the way that Eclipse Phase was launched. Because Eclipse Phase was launched as a free downloadable PDF. Yes. Um, that, I mean, that's kind of like, maybe that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, we do charge for the PDF. If you go to drive-thru, you can, you can buy the core book for $15, which I actually, I think that might be number one of our electronic innovations is when we launched Eclipse Phase in 2009, we made the price $15 compared to the hardcover core book, which is 50 And everyone was like, business-wise, it's like, well, that price is too cheap because at that point, like a core book RPG PDF was probably 25 or 30 bucks, closer to half of the cover price. And our argument was, if it's inexpensive, we will sell enough copies to make basically the same amount of money, but we will have twice as many copies as out there which is better for the long-term health of the game because that's twice as many people that buy supplements, etc. Am I wrong then? Because I seem to recall that there was a, a, a pretty big deal about Eclipse Phase being free to, to get. That's, that's, that, so, that's the second part, is it's also Creative Commons licensed. Which me- uh, Creative Commons, no, no derivatives? No, no, uh, you're allowed to do derivatives. Oh. You're not allowed to do oh. commercial derivatives. So okay, non- you, non-commercial share alike 2.0 then? Yes, attribution as well. So essentially that means however you get the Eclipse Phase PDF, whether you buy it from us or whether you download it from BitTorrent or whether somebody file sends it to you or, you know, shares their Dropbox directory, that's A-OK as long as anyone else isn't charging for it. And the reason we licensed Eclipse Phase Creative Commons is, number one, we are highly influenced by other creative works, whether they be games or movies, novels, and... As something exists and people take it in, it becomes a part of you, and you can't necessarily separate that out. You can't be like, well, I'm going to make this science fiction game, but I am going to completely ignore everything that I ever learned from a William Gibson novel. Because it's just, it's, it, once you've consumed stuff, it's innately a part of you. So we, we felt it was only share, fair to share it in a way that uh, legitimizes it, things becoming innately part of somebody else. They don't have to worry about how it may influence them in the things they make. And hopefully it inspires people in the things they make beyond just their gaming. Well, I found it to be highly inspiring based on the whole – because there's – you know, of course, there's been this thing, you know, running through the industry about piracy and there's this thing running, you know, through the industry about, you know, people trying to monetize, you know, basically every every single aspect. And it, I, it seemed to me – now, you, you, you can say I'm wrong, but it seemed to me as like an outsider looking in that you were kind of the guy who was championing, you know, no, let's – you know, let them have it for free. They'll still buy your stuff. And then you you had some really strong sales numbers to back up that. That stayed right, and because you had given away Eclipse Face. Right, and I, I mean, so, the, like, the, 
the normal business model of when somebody gives something away is typically it's seen as a loss leader. We are going to give away our core book and that is going to spur sales of our supplements because there's going to be more people playing it. And I agree with that. But I also thought that, frankly, people would still buy the electronic version because it has value to them. And some people would rather spend $15 than figure out how to download it off BitTorrent, you know, or, or any other file sharing thing. And also, I, I think that most people are good, honest, generous people. And they understand that something costs money and time and effort to make and that they should pay for it if they want stuff to keep coming out. I think there's an enlightened self-interest thing there. And I also think that somebody having access to the PDF for free um, or at the low cost, if they like it, they're, they're probably going to go out and buy the hardcover book or they're going to buy the next books in the line. They're not going to, you know, just keep, uh, air quotes, freeloading forever. Although, if you are freeloading and downloading Eclipse Face stuff for free off BitTorrent or from a friend or whatever, that's fine too. That's that's not a, that's not a, I don't say, say freeloading in a moral judgment way, although most people use it that way. You were also very transparent with like how well this was doing for you. You actually published like a number, like this is how many books we sold, which not a lot of people do. Yeah, that. but you were doing it. You were doing it again. Is that you know this is this is how we're doing things differently at Post Human. This is how we're doing things differently with Eclipse Phase. We're giving it away, and then we're telling you how well we're doing on top of that, which it was very exciting to me. Let's just right. That and, and honestly, we have been lax in disclosing numbers recently, not because we don't want to, but honestly, we fell behind in doing it, and it's a pretty big task to go back and re-summarize like three years worth of sales and and like well and 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 doing that and at at some point i really need to do that because i do believe that i I think that being relatively transparent about what we're doing is good i mean i'm not gonna you know i don't go around posting how much money we make but you know if if, if you're smart you can derive that frankly um, you could fit. Well, if you if you could give us like right now, just like some kind of ballpark, how many copies of Eclipse Phase have sold? What would your answer be on oh, that? Oh, sure. Um, we have sold. Uh, man, I, I actually had the stock spreadsheet open a few minutes ago, but I closed it. <laughs> we have sold just under eleven thousand copies of the core book in print. Not bad. And that's that's lifetime. That's lifetime. There's Catalyst who did a three thousand print run to start, and that sold out really quickly. They did a second three thousand print run which also sold out really quickly. And then we did a 5,000 print run when we took over all of the publishing duties. And that is going to sell out like next month, probably. Uh, we're down to a couple hundred, I think. And and for the listeners, that's really good. Like 10,000 for anybody who's not Fantasy Flight or Watsi is really good, or Paizo. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think those, those numbers are... I mean, some people say that. Th- they'll be like... People will be like, I don't want to disclose my print numbers because they're, or, or like they're like, why would you disclose your print numbers? Aren't they embarrassing? And I'm like, well, I don't think our numbers are embarrassing in any way. And also, if they are embarrassing, well, then okay, maybe we're doing something wrong. But also, people maybe need to understand that that's the reality of things. Mass market fiction typically prints at five thousand copies unless it's an already best-selling author. Right. So. Well, so thank you, Adam, for telling us all about Eclipse Phase because the listeners wanted to know about it. I wanted to know about it. And it's good that we talk about it as one of the biggest post-cyberpunk RPGs that's currently available on the market. But I don't want to neglect our other guests. I want to actually ask Michael, can you tell us about you, – you mentioned this earlier. Kaze 5 is your particular entry into the cyberpunk area. If listeners want to know more about what that is, why don't you tell them? Okay. Although I do want to ask – Adam, a comment, isn't it kind of meta to be pirating electronically through a torrent a game about cyberpunk 
about a cyberpunk setting? <laughs> well, Very well, meta. Well, th- that's also another thing is uh, I, I do consider it that, that kind of meta. And I, actually, if I can steal like 30 more seconds. Go ahead. I think it's important that you look at somebody who might download a game on BitTorrent or off 4chan or whatever and, and not demonize them. Because number one, you may not know why they are pirating it. They might have been unemployed for a few months and of course everyone still has an internet connection because you really can't get by with you can't apply for jobs now unless you have an internet connection so like i I think everyone regardless of their financial situation deserves to have access to entertainment and i found that if you don't treat pirates badly they end up supporting you there's other games that will have like little like please don't pirate this sidebars or their you know their um creators will be really vocal about it and i just i just don't think that does any good because you're only going to like the only people that care about that are the people that are writing it. Essentially the people that are pirating it, they they don't care what you think, but if you treat them well, I think they are more likely to treat you well. I will, uh, I will put an addendum to that as a longtime visitor to Forchon, uh, never poster, but I recall, and it still happens occasionally. Uh, but when fantasy flight books for 40 K would come out, People would ask about scans, and sometimes scans would show up, but there would be caveats. They would say, look, this is a rough scan, but buy the book because we really like the products that are being made for Dark Heresy and Rogue Trader. And this will, you know, this is going to whet your appetite, but they aren't good, so buy the book. Support the product or else we're not going to see any more of this. And you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, and, and I'll admit I've sometimes you know, taken a look at what they're posting and then said, well, i got to get this. And I've turned around and purchased products because I got a free taste through somebody showing some samples that they had scanned and posted somewhere. So speaking of samples and posting, um, can you tell us about Kaze 5? Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Kaze 5 was me combining my love for the hero system with my impressions of Shadowrun with really watching a lot of 80s anime in the 90s. And wanting to make something of it, I will come out and say that I was kind of unimpressed with the Cyberhero source book that came out from ICE at the time. It felt really clunky and didn't feel like cyberpunk to me. I decided I was going to go my own way. I eventually you know, developed a campaign, ran some ideas, put a lot of work into it, and went to Bruce Harlick at the time and submitted the, the product. It was accepted. It was my first actual published gaming product, and it was embarrassing for me to look back at it when I updated it to 6th edition, I'll be honest. But it takes a lot of tropes and combines them together into a near future, you know, the year is 2030, um, uh, North America that is all divided up after the Second Civil War into about nine different countries, and it gives everything that you're going to kind of want. There's, you know, the powered armor, there's the cat girls, there's the espers, there's the wireless connectivity, there's the cyberware. So, you know, all of that put into a place where the, where I think people can really have fun with it. Uh, however, you know, it's not, it's, it is, it does have a darker side to it. Uh, the fact that much like Blade Runner, you know, they, people are, uh, artificial people are produced and sold just like appliances. You know, there is the question of whether there will be that somewhat brighter transhuman future as things get better, or will it all sort of spiral down? And the players can be part of that if they want. 
isn't the really uh, unique thing about Kaze 5 the fact that it brings in all those 80s anime tropes and really kind of makes them center stage, particularly the uh, the espers? Yeah, yeah. And um, it is a case of where I had to acknowledge the changes in technology. So, uh, you know, I had to really... It couldn't be all rainy and dark and, and horrible because if there's no more fuel, you're going to use something else. And it does utilize that sort of, you know, if anybody's ever seen Akira, that's what we mean when we say espers, guys who can stop tank shells with their mind and teleport around the world and, and you know, rip apart stuff by looking at it. Um, and that's what a lot of people have, have, have liked about it, that there is, I did a, I, I feel I did a really good job of incorporating those concepts and allowing you to define defining how they would work in the setting in, in a way that really fit the source material and was playable. Yeah. And it's very cool. I should, I should say for uh, full disclosure that I have my own stuff in there with regards to, you know, some, some of the things that I've worked on have, have sort of influenced uh, Kaze five and I, I actually have a small writing credit in it. So um, when I say you should go out and buy it, you should definitely do that, but not because of my work. You should do it because of Michael's work. And I am working <laughs> on a um, on a supplement for it right now, Kazi 5 System Upgrade. If you like the core book or if you've already owned the core book, I am will be producing uh, probably by Gen Con next year. There will be a supplement with a little more cyberware, a little more Esper powers, a couple of adventures, and this time there will be actually some essays. Um I'm asking a couple people to maybe give me a thousand words on different little subjects to uh, so that it becomes more than just a source book. It just talks about the setting and concepts relating to the setting in general. And I th- I'm really right. I'm really happy with how, how it's coming along so far. And I'm looking forward to that as well. And at this point, we should take a quick break. Hi, this is Rich. And Amanda. For Animation Celebration. We have a great show going on March 28th through 30th at the Hilton Garden Inn in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Come meet Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, and Steve Cardenas, the Red Power Ranger. We have exclusive VIP ticket for dinner with Kevin Conroy. Come meet your favorite voice actor in person. We have a lot of other great guests coming, like Matt Hill, Raphael from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Big Ed from Ed, Ed, and Eddie. We've got actors from everything from Disney shows to My Little Pony. Check out the area Ghostbusters and more. Tickets are available online right now at www.animation-celebration.com. We even have a Big Lebowski night. We look forward to seeing you all there. And we're back with episode 22 of the Gamers Tavern with Michael Serbrook and Adam Jury. And we just got done talking about... Eclipse phase, and we got done talking about Kaze 5, and uh, we're kind of going to need to dive into some of the maybe lesser-known RPGs of this particular genre tonight, our topic being cyberpunk and post-cyberpunk slash post-human. I kind of think we should talk about the the big daddy that we only kind of glossed over. What's that? The game called Cyberpunk. Well, we did, we did talk about it a little bit, but you're right. Maybe we should get a little more into that. So, for one thing, for one thing, the original Cyberpunk book was Cyberpunk 2013. <laughs> was it really? Yes. Wow. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So Cyberpunk, which uh, probably the best known version is Cyberpunk 2020, uh, is the name of that. It uh, came out from Artelsorian Games, designed by Mike Pondsmith. Uh, much like many of the other games we're going to mention here, uh, I don't think as a core product it was played very much, but it had a lot of very interesting, useful, and in some cases, influential uh, supplements. 
Listen up, you primitive screwheads is one of my favorite source books. Uh, the Chromebooks had a lot of really cool content in it for guys who liked cybernetics. Uh, Night City was a fairly interesting setting. Um, can you guys, uh, can Michael, Adam, you guys have any experience with Cyberpunk 2020 to share? I did play a couple of sessions of it a very long time ago. Uh, and But I do own a Chromebook, um, and I do recall seeing the most recent version and being very confused by the art in it. Yes, the very the most recent version, of course. Uh, Spoonie also covered this on his show. The most recent version of, of Cyberpunk, uh, all the artwork was photos of GI Joe dolls uh, who were made to look like <laughs> Cyberpunk characters, and then given like a filter. It was a very strange and questionable hilarious, choice. hilarious choice. Uh, hilarious. I don't think they intended it to be hilarious, but <laughs> yeah. And then the pages all felt like they were on a glossy magazine. It was just. It was very. Uh, yeah, it was not the kind of book that made me want to buy it. Let's just put it that way. But there was one thing I wanted to talk about with uh, Cyberpunk, and that was specifically the GURPS Cyberpunk book that yeah, they did. Yeah, this is not Cyberpunk 2020. This is the specifically the GURPS role-playing game, which had the GURPS Cyberpunk source book. Yeah, and this was, and I don't know if you have either of you guys read Bert, Bruce Sterling's Hacker Crackdown? No. I have, but no. not for uh, well over a decade. Yeah, this this was a book that was talking about uh, the Secret Service in the late '80s and early '90s really, really cracked down hard on computer hacking because the internet was kind of starting to spread. BBSs were a big thing, and they were trying to crack down a lot of these things. And one of the things they did was they uh, Steve Jackson Games hired a guy called Lloyd Blankenship to write their GURP cyberpunk book. Uh, he was also known online as The Mentor and was famous in hacker circles for writing a uh, something called The Hacker Manifesto. Uh, that's the thing that was read off, uh, if you've seen the movie Hackers. It's, they read it off in there. What happened was, on March 1st, 1990, the Secret Service came in armed to the Steve Jackson offices and took pretty much all their computers and a bunch of their original manuscripts, calling them, quote, handbooks for computer crime. They refused to return the manuscripts, and Steve Jackson Games pretty much had to rewrite the entire book from older drafts. Steve Jackson Games sued, and it was also one of the first cases for the newly founded Electronic Frontier Foundation, who defended them against the search, and out of three... Uh, out of three... Uh, claims they made in their lawsuit against the Secret Service. Uh, they won two of them and got three over $300,000 in damages and legal fees from them because basically they thought that a role-playing game book about cyberpunk was somehow, way, shape, or form a manual for how to actually steal money online using tools that weren't invented for money that didn't exist. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Are you trying to tell me the American government misinterpreted someone's game and overreacted? I Not know. this country. Shocking. <laughs> they were actually claiming that the that it was how to build devices to steal credits that were in the game were actual things that existed. Yes, it was a, a disturbing overreaction. And, uh, you know, the best part is, of course, Steve Jackson would turn it around and sold many, many, many more copies of the book by putting a big splash uh, image on the front of the book that said, this was seized by the U.S. Secret Service. <laughs> Cause Mike Serbrook had a spit take. You okay, Mike? <laughs> 
I, I think we just killed Michael. It was a spit take. Uh, but yes, Mike, uh, uh, Steve Jackson turned that around and just sold tons and tons and tons of books because it was seized by the, the, the Secret Service. Just sort of epitomizing that whole there is no such thing as bad press concept. Okay, uh, Michael, are you okay? And more importantly, is your computer yes. okay? <laughs> okay I was able to cough all the water right back into the glass it came out of, so I'm not going to drink that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think the Secret Service right. case is so, kind yeah, of interesting too. Um, in like, there's still a huge amount of misinformation about it. Um, and I wouldn't have brought this up except I was literally at a party last night, and there were some people playing Munchkin, and somebody started talking about Steve Jackson games and was like, "Oh yeah, one of their books was you know seized by the Secret Service years ago," and then they won a lawsuit and they won sixty million dollars, <laughs> and. <laughs> and and I sure was they wish. like playing another game. I was not really involved in that conversation, and so I was kind of like, I don't think they earned quite that much. And then I just kind of left it at that because I, I actually did not know that other person and did not really want to be like, you know, you're wrong, dude. <laughs> I would be actually, very surprised if that well, was it, that much money. <laughs> I had heard, yeah, it was, I had uh, heard that the- and even I was kind of misrepresenting it when I said three hundred thousand, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of that was attorney's fees. Fifty thousand dollars of it was uh, lost revenue, and they paid for because uh, Steve Jackson Games at the time had to lay off about half their employees to keep the doors open and get that book out. And they showed actual financial harm, and that's where they got forty three thousand dollars from. And then s- the seventeen employees at the time got one thousand. They were awarded one thousand dollars each for the employees. Okay, and then there was two hundred fifty thousand in legal fees. I, I actually read the entire friggin' court document that before this. Details, I really wanted to get this in the show. That is details I did not was, know. So yeah, I, I really wanted to get that on the show because I spend an hour reading court documents, and I hate reading court documents. All right, I will do it if I have to. But I, hate <laughs> it. I remember hearing. Uh, I believe the judge almost laughed it out of, out of court, not at Steve Jackson, but at the Secret Service for what they did, or something to that effect. Yeah, the ruling is kind of it for a court document. It's kind of funny to read. Um, it, it, yeah, he gave them even Steve Jackson games on the. By the way, if you want to read all these court documents because you're crazy like I am, they're on the Steve Jackson games website, and I'll have a link in the show notes to the to their take on the whole thing and all the links that they have to all the court documents that were filed and blah blah blah. The words that were used on their website was tongue lashing. <laughs> it was. It was basically the word incompetence came up many times. Well, it's also a good reflection of like the, the tone was incredulous. The, the, this is this is a good reflection of what cyberpunk is about, though, because it's about when the government comes in and seizes your documents because they're potentially harmful. That is exactly like what cyberpunk is uh, in many cases, because the information because of the data could be you know, damaging to the country. I think Adam would agree with me that that's also just a good reflection of what. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And um a good example of how quickly different aspects of society move because in the early 90s cyberpunk yeah. was you know well represented in fiction becoming more represented in games obviously there's had been some movies that were on the cyberpunk theme with more to come and here's the government trying to like that can't parse the difference between real world hacking and fictional hacking and I mean, I mean that it's a, I mean that's really interesting because I mean the lines there were really blurred because uh, Lloyd Blankenship, or Blankenship was involved in phone hacking and whatnot as well, but they they still were not able to see the difference when I, I think it should have been relative, relatively obvious if they had been 
you know, monitoring as much communications as I think they had been. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk about another game, too, because um, we've, we've talked about Cyberpunk 2020, but there's actually a sequel to Cyberpunk 2020 that I think is a, not only a really interesting game, not only a very interesting subject, but I believe it is also one of the few games I would point to as saying this kind of bridges the gap between Cyberpunk and post-Cyberpunk and post-humanism, and that's Cyber Generation. Are you, either of you guys familiar with Cyber Generation? No, I know of it, but I, I've actually never read Cyber Generation. So Cyber Generation, basically what happens is the world of Cyberpunk 2020 uh, has a thing called the Nano Plague, where these uh, you know miniature machines break out and they kind of infect a large portion of the world, and it, and it reshapes the whole Cyberpunk aspect into a slightly more nanotechnological approach. Uh, where you have some of the holdovers from the, the Cyberpunk 2020 world, like they have a, a character called Spider, I believe, who's very, basically Spider Jerusalem, and they have you know Johnny Silverhand and those guys who are now mentoring the new generation of heroes. And the new generation of heroes are all people that have been altered by the Nano Plague in v- different ways. So you have a guy he can modify his body to become weapons with the Nano m- Metal that's in his bones, or another guy who can use his uh, his Nano augmented senses to study the electrical impulses of your brain and basically read your mind. There were some really, really cool and interesting approaches of how nanotechnology could be basically magic, if you want to put it that way, in this, uh, this new future. But what I loved about it is it was deliberately showing you the end of the cyberpunk and the beginning of the post-human uh, side of things. And I thought it was really influential and interesting because of that. Maybe should have been influential, but it didn't turn out to be quite so such a big seller. But there you go. Yeah, it, it came out in like '93, so it was way ahead of the curve, even when it comes to nanotechnology. Right. That was just that was that was theorized science in '93. That wasn't because we do have nanotechnology right. now. It's just not. We haven't gotten quite to awesome levels yet but if anybody if any of our listeners out there are fans of both cyberpunk and posthuman and really interested to see like the, the the way that one becomes the other i strongly encourage you to go out and take a look at cyber generation if you can because cyber generation is just not only a a really interesting look at it, it's it's well written it's got a really nice what we'd like to call adventuring paradigm and it's got the different niches set up for how these characters work together uh very well and plus, you're and was, playing it younger was kind of characters. Superhero, wasn't it? Well, you're playing younger characters. The idea is you're playing like you know, uh, barely teens and teenagers. Uh, so you, they, what they what they had done is they said we we're tired of the you know old rich super professional cyberpunk. We want to see what happens when a bunch of you know basically uh, young punks come treading on their their territory and see what happens. Um, so that's that's what Cyber Generation is all about, and I do highly recommend it as something people should should definitely check out if you're interested in these kinds of things. I don't think this sale is uh, still going to be going on when the episode is posted, but it is uh, it's on sale in the drive throughs Valentine's Day sale right now too. It's under ten bucks. <laughs> so there you go. Um, go check. Hey it out. Ross, your yeah. comment about data. Um, I know this isn't a cyberpunk game. But I think it's a telling thing that when I watched the movie Johnny Mnemonic, in which we found out the, the horrible, future would have no film. lights, uh, um, one of the things that <laughs> and dolphins, one of the things that actually I found um, sort of uh, my, one of my problems with it is they made a big deal about the data that Keanu Reeves had in his head, and I thought this is three hundred and twenty gigs. 
Um, but I thought, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what that data is. You know, uh, this is cyberpunk. Data is data. It's, it's important to somebody. It doesn't have to save the world. It just has to be data somebody's willing to kill for. And in true cyberpunk fashion, you should never know what it is. It's That's one of the mysteries. Um, well, it was just a thought I had. Yeah, I would say you know, based on your comment. No, I, I would. Well, there's many, many, many things you could do to improve Johnny Mnemonic as a film. Um, but yes, <laughs> one of those things would be to make it more cyberpunk. And one way to do that would be to basically conceal the nature of the of the data. Yeah, we talked about Johnny Mnemonic on our uh, gaming In and film, film yeah. episode. And I've, got, and I've just got one line I want to repeat from that. When your best actors in your film giving the best performances are Dolph Lundgren and, Mike, and Henry Rollins, you're kind of in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's let's move on because there actually is quite a few games in in the uh, in the gaming area that have to do with cyberpunk and posthuman stuff. I was kind of reaching back into the past with Cyber Generation. Um, maybe slightly more recent uh, is stuff like D twenty Modern and D twenty Future and Ex Machina. Are are do you, do you guys know anything about those? I worked for the publisher of Ex Machina when it came out. Um, Ex Machina was a, a TriStat-based cyberpunk role-playing game from Guardians of Order, and it used um, it used their like their universal TriStat rules, the the ones that could scale for different die sizes. Um, yeah, it was a big eye, small mouth was the big core. Yeah, system it, yeah, it was for derived that. off that, and um, and then it had three or I think four actual distinct settings in there, written by uh, different freelance authors. Um. And it, it, it was a, it was a it was a one off release. Guardians was they did a they did a cyberpunk and an urban fantasy one in the same series called Dreaming Cities, but that was the only ones they got released before Shuttering. Um, okay. I do own a copy uh, of it. So, I think it's a very handsome volume. Oh, there we go. And they did do a D twenty version of that. As no, well, that that actually never point. got released. Nope. Oh, it di- it didn't. I would say so Adam is the expert then. on this one. <laughs> I'm going to take his word over Wikipedia, so I actually have that in my show notes. Take out, I I trust anything Adam Jury says over Wikipedia. Well, you know, this is another it's literally factor, in my notes. This is another factor of cyberpunk, though. Right here is the validity of data and the, and how we you know process that and work with that in our da- daily lives. Most people tend to take a, a Wikipedia as an authority, and this is just a good example of maybe why we shouldn't. And you know, that's one <laughs> of the things that cyberpunk does. It makes you think about the ways you deal with information. But there was a D20 cyberpunk system built into uh, the D20 future. That was Chris Perkins, Rodney Thompson, and J.D. Wilker designed that one. It was basically all forms of sci-fi, but there was some cyberpunk in it. Then they had D20 cyberspace that came out, and that was uh, Owen Casey Stevens designed that one. It was more cybernetics, and it had a cyberpunk campaign called Cyber Rave. I'm going to say this. I think of all the games we've talked about, uh, pro- possibly the the one I've I've seen the absolute least talked about or played around the table is D20 Future and D20 Modern. I for some reason I just don't, especially in my area, those games just never took off. Now that maybe not. I I, I tried a couple of times to run that because I always wanted to run Shadowrun. No one wanted to learn another system other than D and D, so I kind of had to shoehorn it where I could, and it's. The biggest problem with it, and the reason why I don't think it took off that well, is that the sort of level-based advancement you have in D&D doesn't really work in a cyberpunk-style game or any sci-fi game, really. And one more I want to briefly touch on about like one of the games of the past that has to do with cyber cyberpunk uh, is SLA Industries, which is a very interesting and unique setting. Um, 
Adam Slay Michael Industries. It's the pronunciations vary. <laughs> what do you guys think of it? I know do of you- it. Um, I have no experience with it. I, for some reason, I categorize it with unknown armies. I think I got those always confused a lot. Uh, although I have yeah, played unknown sur- armies, they're both a little surreal. So that's fair. The key thing about SLA Industries uh, was that it was a you know full of corporations in the future, and you're you know sort of fighting for your freedom. But the the most unique bit about that was it was all basically revealed in the end that it was all a dream. That the truth. Oh, you're talking about the truth document. Yeah, the truth out. behind the setting is that it was all a hallucination. That was uh, something I had in the notes. What what happened was uh, the editor at the time, and I'm going to butcher this name. I'm sure Tim Dedapolis. Dedapolis. It. it uh, I, I suck at Greek names. I'm sorry, but uh, he was on a mailing list in 1998, and he put the game's bible, which was called the Truth in the mailing list for people to read and this before then it was like freelancers had to sign NDAs you will not release you will not tell anyone the secrets behind this and then they put it out in a mailing list and they've since revoked any sort of open license you cannot share this legally so don't try to track it down they don't print it anymore but yeah cubicle 7 put it on their website when they got the license for it and then they yanked it off too because apparently nobody nobody was happy it's, about it's that. fair to say SLA Industries is a quirky game in a quirky setting that does have some cool cyberpunk bits to it. Um, I have a copy of it, but mostly just for novelty value. Okay, and maybe you know, definitely coming into the more modern era, uh, we've got things like Corporation, uh, A-State, Alpha Omega, uh, Halcyon, and Technoir. The only thing I can say about Technoir is I know it was designed by... Uh, the guy that did the game that was based on the monks, uh, Jeremy. His first name is Jeremy, and his last name is. I should probably. Is look it this Jeremy up. Kellner? <laughs> it is Jeremy Keller. Yeah, and it's. Uh, it was based on the game he had done previous to it, which was called. It was called Chronica Feudalis. So yeah, uh, Tech Noir was uh, done by a uh, Kickstarter, I believe, and it was. It's basically. Uh, Mystery detective noir mixed with cyberpunk. I honestly haven't played it. Uh, I do know Jeremy, and I do know some of the people that worked on it, and it apparently won some awards. So uh, I, I assume that maybe one of you guys might be able to share more light on it. But that—that's all I know. I, I don't know much about that game specifically. I remember the Kickstarter, but I—it is indicative of something that's going on in the past few years. There have been a lot of independent games that have been coming out for that are and cyberpunk in some cases straight throwbacks to pure cyberpunk yeah and those would be stuff like alpha omega and nova praxis and interface zero uh nova praxis i would say is actually more um post-human it's like post-human with a slight more dash of uh of uh sci-fi in it adam are you familiar with a little bit yeah actually it was the one that whose name i could not remember earlier that nova praxis was what i was thinking of I had to ask a friend of mine on Facebook and like, dude, what was that? What was that game? Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. The, the PDF that they did for that with the enhanced uh, features, where you can you can basically like uh, page through the PDF like you're you're in a Star Trek uh, holodeck. It's yeah, it gets, awesome. it gets a lot of praise. I haven't read it all. I think it takes a little more of like a hard sci-fi approach, but I might be remembering it wrong. Yeah, I, I agree. It seems more sci-fi to me, but it definitely has a post-human feel to it and as well i seem to think that they are working on a new version of it yes, yeah for savage worlds i believe 
because it's originally right, and fate. It was, and it, it was it was fate before fate core came out if i remember rightly that's possible i, I couldn't swear to that um, Alpha Omega is a game that I own mostly because it's very pretty. <laughs> uh, it has a lot of art in it by a guy named uh, uh, Matt Bradbury. That's just it. That's it. And Matt, we kind of ended up uh, yanking him from those guys and p- put him over to 40K because he was so good. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, as soon as Matt left, uh, I think Alpha Omega crashed and burned, which is a shame because it was kind of an interesting looking game. Um, where it was, it was, it was like Alpha Omega struck me as basically. Uh, what if you took Shadowrun, but instead of all the fantasy tropes, you put in the whole religious angels versus demons tropes into Cyberpunk? Oh, I remember this one now. It was okay. it was a neat idea, and the books were all laid out landscape format, um, which is kind of bizarre, <laughs> um, but it definitely added to the whole you know strange feeling but if of it. If, if that's a PDF, that's actually a bonus. I always like the landscape on a PDF. I, I don't know if it. Uh, I'm pretty sure they are PDFs somewhere, but I own the physical copies of them. And they are, they look weird. They look weird on my shelf because they're they they're right. I have to I have to stock the next on my BattleTech TROs because they're all done layout <laughs> stuff. And if there is a PDF, I will track it down and I'm, link in the I'm show notes. I'm pretty sure that the PDFs right, well, are still available, but actually, their website is completely down and was as was yeah. as of like a few months it's ago because I was kind of curious, like, hey, they haven't done anything in a while, so I did a little bit of nosing around, and so it seems like they are finished. But the P- yeah, the PDFs are still up on Drive Through. Uh, does anybody have anything else they can say about some of these other things we talked about? Uh, a state or corporation? Those are all new titles to me. Yeah. Honestly, I've not even heard of those. Okay. Yeah. Well, some of them are so new that um, I just haven't had any exposure to them either. Okay. So let's take another step back. Then um, let's talk about some games that maybe are not completely cyberpunk, but it definitely have some influences from cyberpunk in them. And these would have to be the more well-known ones. So I think we want to start with one that's actually got a Kickstarter going for it right now for a new edition, and that is Mutant Chronicles. With Mutant Chronicles was, of course, uh, set in the future where there was a lot of cyber technology, a lot of corporations. In fact, all of the major factions in Mutant Chronicles are mega corporations. As far as I'm aware, there are no real you know, nation states. It's all based on the corporations that run things in the future. And there's uh, one of those corporations is actually called Cybertech, I believe. Mutant Chronicles was one of those games that, like, the times it was popular and being published was, like, a little bit before I got into gaming. And once I got into gaming, it was kind of, it already kind of petered out for a bit. So Cybertronic. I'm sorry, the company name is Cybertronic. But, yeah. Yeah, it was early. It was, I agree, Adam. I was the same way. I was like, it was out, and I saw it, but by the time I started getting into gaming, it was Yeah, gone. so I'm kind of interested to check it out. I'm just scrolling through their Kickstarter right now. Uh, their page designs look pretty nice. Well, there's a lot of guys who worked with me at Fantasy Flight who are now working on that particular project, like John Dunn and Jason Marker. So there's that. That's one. Adam and I actually brought this up earlier. Uh, Rifts also has a, quite a bit of cyber uh, cyberpunk... Uh, styling along with it, everything else you ways, could think of <laughs> which of course that's true but you know it's 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 not it's not unfair to say though that there are significant portions of riffs that are based on cyberpunk tropes and cyberpunk you know materials yeah, absolutely we've we've actually i think almost every time we've done a genre show we've brought up riffs because it is it's yep. it smashes into every other genre so well, I, I think the most cyberpunk of all the riff source books which i bought just for the art was riffs japan I mean, I'd like to download my consciousness into a 40-foot-tall cybernetic dragon and wreak havoc. Because you <laughs> yeah. can. You can also be a you know cybernetic ninja next to the supernatural ninja, next to the guy who is a secretly a dragon but who is also a ninja. <laughs> 
Okay, and um, Warhammer 40,000, all of the different Warhammer 40K role-playing games have got uh, cybernetics as a big feature because it seems like every single person in the Imperium of Man has some kind of bionic part, typically a head tube or some kind of arm or leg or maybe an eye. Yeah, the, the cybernetics are a big thing in that in that. Beginning. And instead of our Blade Runner replicants, you get servitors. Yes, servitor. Well, because artificial intelligence is blasphemous in Warhammer 40k, all of their guys who would otherwise be robots are actually lobotomized human beings or cloned flesh tissue that is then cybernetically wired into whatever technology they needed to run, which is kind of cool, but at the same time, kind of creepy. Uh, I think the whole, you know, are you still human under all that is perfectly illustrated with the, probably going to get it wrong, is it the Adeptus Mechanicus, the tech priests who, you know, yes. are just at times are basically just a spider web of machine parts? Yes, well, they, yeah, and, and they, they definitely embrace it far more than anyone else in that, in that setting. But, uh, you know, actually the whole what is human thing is not really quite a, as big a trope in 40K. They really, you know, they pretty much assume everyone's, you know, yay human because the whole the whole Imperium is all about yay human. We're all humans. All right. Woo. Everything that isn't human sucks. Kill it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the whole question of whether we are or aren't human based on cybernetics, that's I, I would say that's probably really not an issue unless in, in some very, very small niche places. But then we get to things like paranoia, <laughs> which definitely has, I mean, there's a whole secret society dedicated to replacing your flesh with bionics. Computer is your friend. Of course, the computer being the monolithic uh, authority figure in that setting. Uh, and and the, it is very dystopian. And Call computer monolithic is traitors. Please report to the nearest termination chamber. <laughs> uh, what, what you don't know is that I have ultraviolet security clearance uh, citizens. Oh, am I allowed to be on this? I don't think I have that kind of clearance. <laughs> I'm wearing a black shirt. I could be in trouble. <laughs> well, the Gamers Tavern colors are black and red. Uh, so. We're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, my color, again, is ultraviolet. You, you, you're seeing it, but you're not really seeing it, if you see what I mean. Well, there's also a – I guess there's also a little of transhumanism in that and with all the cloning and, and the mutant powers due to cloning and, and such. It's – What mutant powers? Mutant powers are a common traitorous plot. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, yes, lo- friend, I love yes, comrade. It is, yes, it <laughs> you're is. right. It is communist plot. <laughs> comrade? Did he just Uh-oh. say comrade? It is communist plot. <laughs> zap, zap, zap. <laughs> Yeah, so paranoia definitely uh, embraces some of that as well. And uh, there's a book by... And with its traditional tongue-in-cheek yeah. fashion. I, I ah! love paranoia. I'm surprised. It's come up a couple of times on the show. I'm surprised we haven't talked about it more, though. Well, paranoia... Such a blast. The, 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 the strength of paranoia is also its weakness in that it's it's great comedy, but it's just... It, it doesn't sustain. They tried to do it serious as like a dark dystopian thing, and I think uh, I think it was third edition... Where they tried to do that, and it just didn't. Paranoia work. is something I'd love to play at a convention, but I would probably balk at trying to do a long campaign. No, I've always felt it makes a great one-shot. Um, actually, yeah. gentlemen, I just looked over my shoulder at my shelves, and something that combines a little bit of post-humanism, transhumanism, and cyberpunk would be Blue Planet. Uplifted animals, uh, genetically augmented humans, and cybernetics to allow you to you know remain underwater and, and so on. That's all through that setting. True. And there's also GURPS Cthulhu Punk, which uh, mixes in the Cthulhu mythos to add into all the the what is human tropes and the you know the fears that we already have. We're going to add on top of that Cthulhu. And if you, and uh, let's not forget Feng Shui. 
Feng Shui, yes, although that's uh, I would argue that's a very small part of that. Well, the 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 uh, our bio and our kind of wear from uh, right the uh, architects of the flesh. But yes, that's yeah, just that, one that small is, segment. But they do have cybernetic apes, is, and really, you know, that's a win right there. <laughs> that is totally a win. I would agree. And uh, I think if if we don't have much more to say about uh, these types of games, there's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Adam and Michael there's one. There's one one more game I kind of wanted to bring up. It's not a role playing game. It's a tabletop game called Netrunner. Well, Netrunner, uh, yeah, Netrunner is also part of uh, the Android universe, which includes games like. Well, Android. And uh, then there's, of course, if you're going to go down that route, we're going to have to talk about the Hackers tabletop game by Steve Jackson. Well, the, the original the original Netrunner was supposed to be a cyberpunk trading card game in 96. It still is a cyberpunk. From, which is the coast. It still is a cyberpunk. But, I mean, uh, cyberpunk, I mean it's in game. cyberpunk 2020. Was it? Oh. Yes, it was licensed. They had some of the characters from it, and the designer of Cyberpunk 2020 showed up as a character in the card game. I see. And this was the, this was the first collectible card game from Wizards of the Coast that no I'm sorry the second one that was not Magic the Gathering it was Magic the Gathering then Jihad which was the Vampire the Masquerade one then they did Netrunner and then Fantasy Flight Games released it as a living card game where you just buy the box right. of the cards and instead of having to buy little trading packs and, and they released it as an Android Universe game yes it's now Android Netrunner okay and it is apparently very very well regarded yes it is as a tabletop game so, so I, don't, I don't know if you had any if you knew anything about that from the insider well i i shared just everything i had on it just then so. <laughs> okay let's ask our guests if they have any other games they want to chat about and then we're going to kind of segue into the final section of um, our podcast actually two games that i just thought of while we were talking uh, number one there was also an official like licensed cyberpunk ccg in 2003 by a company called social games and i think it was the only thing they ever did um and I, I obviously I don't think it did very well because it looks like you can buy boxes for about fifteen bucks each on eBay right now. Um, and in wow, card games, ouch. there was also <laughs> a Shadowrun CCG. Don't, I never I never heard of it. Oh yeah, I, I actually have my uh, my uh, Dirk Montgomery card. That's the only <laughs> yeah. Card I actually I found have. a whole bunch of old CCG stuff while digging around a few weeks ago. I'm like, oh yeah, these games existed. Um, and in modern cyberpunk RPGs, there's also Always Never Now from Will Heinmark, which was a Kickstarter project last year, I think. And that's a like a very action-focused cyberpunk role-playing game, which I have not had chance to play yet, but it looks pretty interesting. That's that that sounds interesting. I've never heard of it until now. So um, it's a fun drive-through. Uh, is a cool. pay-what-you-want project, actually. It's, it's a very, mm. as far as I know, it's a very self-contained game setting plus adventures all in the core pack. Well, I need to make a special mention about Interface Zero. Uh, Interface Zero is a new game that came out for Savage Worlds, I think, last year or the year before. And we got review copies of that, so we are going to actually have a review that game on this podcast. Uh, but at the time of this particular broadcast, we have not uh, completed our, our study of it, but it looks very interesting. Also, we, ne- we didn't mention Underground from Mayfair Games, which is... Um, ah. Uh, like a futuristic America gone crazy politics plus bio modifications game written by Ray Winnegar, if I believe correctly, and published in the mid nineties. Wasn't that illustrated okay. by the guy that worked with Frank Miller on some really crazy comics? I mean, really, really intricate artwork from I can't remember the guy's name. I don't know the guy's. name. I'm thinking of the right. Game. I, I think you're th- the, the 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 art was really like really color comic-y, very gonzo. And it was uh, also, it was one of the... F- 
I'm trying to remember the comic that he worked on with FS Who I think it is. I think it was Hard Boiled or something about the policeman and just incredibly detailed panels. I, I, I associate that art, and I think he did like maybe a cover or some artwork on it, but I do recall Underground. Um, Underground was also one of the first RPGs that was like a full-color, glossy rulebook release. Several, it's kind of several years ahead of the curve there. Well, we're going to get the Imperial Guard mad at us if we stay too long in the, in the, in the tavern, so we better better bring it back down to uh, to talk about our guests a little bit. Adam, I just wanted to say one last thing about Eclipse Phase. Um, I know you're going to probably tell us all about what's new for that, but something a little old for that that most people may not know. If you buy Eclipse Phase and you read Eclipse Phase, you get to read about a space station made out of bacon. I knew. As soon as you said space station, I knew what you were talking about. <laughs> because that's kind of awesome. There, there's a, Everything's better with there's bacon. There's a space station called Meat Hab. Um, <laughs> Is uh, it, it, and it, Meat Hab is it's it, it's it's a space station, but I mean Meat Hab is also sentient. Uh, so Meat Hab is a character as well. <laughs> um, wow! <laughs> sentient bacon space station. One of the one of the great things. How about is this not space, spread through the internet already? <laughs> I don't know. Like maybe maybe we need to do more about Meat Hab. But one of the things I like about EP is throwing some cats, man. Throwing is, some cats. Is, seriously, you, you'll be front page Reddit every. That day. is actually like one of the golden eclipse phase rules is. There's no canon cat girls. That's a hard limit for us. But one of the, like, one of the <laughs> okay. things I really I like about cats e- in general, not cat girls. <laughs> one of the things I really like about EP is because the universe is so vast, we can throw in things that are really off the wall, like Meat Hab, and they are they can be consistent with the setting. But if you think Meat Hab is just a, like a little too far out for your sci-fi tastes, the setting <laughs> is vast enough that you can never go near it. You can really you can really ignore it. For, um, I, I see what you did there for your tastes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, Adam, why don't you tell the listeners uh, what is the latest thing that you've been working on and where they can find that on the interwebs? The latest Eclipse Phase release is Transhuman, which is like the advanced player's guide, and it has um, alternate character creation rules. It has a random path-based system. So you can uh, – the great thing about Eclipse Phase is you can die during character generation and still play that character. <laughs> you, you can use those rules either randomly or by just building a character using the path system. It also has some like optional morphs, some additional role-playing guidelines. So it's it's a it's a follow-up to the core book that's uh, useful for both players and GMs. You can pretty much die almost any time in Eclipse Phase, and that's not going to stop you from playing that character. That is correct, and that that is a selling point. <laughs> right. Okay. And where can we where can we learn more about this uh, new release? Uh, it, up on EclipsePhase.com, we have uh, links to all of our releases. All of our stuff's on uh, Drive Through RPG as well. If you uh, prefer electronic stuff. Cool. Clipsphase.com, there's a page that says releases, all of our books, electronic stuff, all of that is cataloged there. And if I if I remember correctly, there's actually quite a few uh, Shadowrun writers who are now writing for Eclipse Phase. So if you follow, you know, guys like uh, T.S. Lukert or some of the other guys you have on your, your stable of writers there. Yeah, um, b- because we had worked with those writers before, of course, some of them ended up working on Eclipse Phase, too. So, yeah, there's, there's a few uh, well-known names. Bobby Deary. Yep, Bobby Derry did a, a blog called Farcast. It's farcastblog.com. And every day last year, he posted an Eclipse Phase setting tidbit that he'd written himself. Um, so he's got uh, 365 of them, and they're all categorized. I'm just looking at he has he has 104 NPCs, 99 are labeled tech, 60 are labeled locations. So there's just all sorts of different snippets. And then at the end of the year, I think he compiled it into a PDF document as well, so you can kind of grab them. Yeah, it was like 250,000 yeah, words. Yeah, honestly, he, he wrote more Something stuff like for Eclipse Phase that year than we did. 
<laughs> wow, that's impressive. <laughs> at least published. At least published. So uh, that was a very impressive effort. And he he checked in every couple of months. He's like, "Hey, have you seen all the new stuff?" And I, I haven't had a chance to read it all yet. But uh, it's uh, <laughs> it was it was a pretty impressive. It kind of like a love letter to Eclipse Phase in a way, which is very flattering. And uh, Mike Serbrook's been waiting patiently for this whole podcast to talk about the, uh, <laughs> the the new releases that he has has just gotten into the works. So, Mike, why don't you tell us about what you've got coming out lately and where we can find that? I have submitted two manuscripts to Blackworm Games. Uh, I'll talk about the shorter one first. It's called, in keeping with naming conventions of certain hero products, it's called uh, Ghost Ghouls and Golems, a hero system source book for the supernatural. It is a guide to classic supernatural entities, vampires, ghosts, werewolves, golems, uh, wendigo, ghouls, uh, it, with an emphasis more on what the creature is about as opposed to endless pages of character sheets. So you get an introduction to the creature, you get uh, historical accounts of ghosts or ghouls, including real-world people eating other people, you get a, some templates or character sheets, you get a, a nice breakdown of what you're doing, including examples from around the world, so that even if you're not a hero gamer, you could probably use it as a source of ideas for just about any system. So it's a bestiary where the monsters are not just a big blob of stats. Yeah, exactly. All right. And uh, capitalizing on uh, public domain, you get hero system character sheets for Count Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, uh, Jack the Ripper... And since I go all the way up into the modern era, and for and keeping with our cyberpunk theme, the last guy in the book is a hero system character sheet for Slenderman. How is that cyberpunk? <laughs> uh, it's an internet meme. Ah, okay. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, all right. And what's the other book? The other book uh, is uh, something that I am really proud of, and I blame Ken Height for giving me the idea. And he, you know, he's really upset about that. But it's called now called Larger Than Life, Adventures in American Folklore. It is um, 145,000 words. And what it is, it's a breakdown of um, archetypical or American archetypes from 1700 to 1900. With an emphasis on the folklore or mythical look that these characters took. And when I say archetypes, you know, they're very broad. There's the pirate, the continental soldier, the backwoodsman, the cowboy, the occupational hero, the lawman, the inventor, the eccentric, and so on. And much like the previous book, you get a primary example of that archetype written up in full detail, full background, as complete and accurate to the tall tales, usually, as I could make it. So you get Blackbeard and John Henry and Paul Bunyan and Nikola Tesla and Stagger Lee and Emperor Norton and Wild Bill Hickok. Uh, and then once you get through that... Davy Crockett, I'm assuming. Yes. Oh, he's not legendary at all. No, I'm sorry. No, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it would be kind of boring just to see one guy. So there are anywhere from three to a dozen biographies of similar similar characters. So I talk about a dozen different pirates. I talk about half a dozen other inventors or a scattering eccentrics or other people who were lumberjacks and so on, you know, uh, from the tall tales and reality, and give you an idea of who they were and what they did and what made them so spectacular. And then you get a template so you can build your own. And also other add-ons like uh, lexicons or little little uh, quotes of lyrics or pieces of songs. Or for the sailor, I even talk about famous ships all through American history. Where, 
where can we find this uh, information about these these releases? We're gonna have to uh, the hero web uh, hero message boards, the hero website. Uh, there's some uh, press releases talking about some of these products that are out. Uh, Blackworm should have something soon, I hope. Both of them have gone. What's the Blackworm website? Uh, I believe it says blackworm.com. Okay, and that's Blackworm with a W Y R M. Yes, and their RPG section. Uh, I know uh, Larger Than Life has gone to layout, and I am really, really hoping that you can come by and get the copies at Gen Con. All right. Well, Daryl and I are both extremely grateful that you guys came and joined us tonight to talk about cyberpunk and post-cyberpunk, uh, post-human games. Thank you very, very much for joining us on the Gamers Tavern. We're really glad to have you guys. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, and again, I'm, I'm a big fan of both of your work, and um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the new stuff that's coming out from uh, from both both of you guys to kind of add more to that uh, body work that you're well known for. Daryl, you got anything else we want to say on Cyberpunk Games before we close this out? I'm trying to think of something a witty one-liner, and I'm just <laughs> not. Right I'm too All right, tired. well, that's that's fine. Uh, so that's the end of this episode of the Gamers Tavern. Until next time, may all your hits be crits. Well, that about wraps things up for Gamers Tavern this week. Comments time. Yeah, I've been slacking a little bit on these. I apologize. But if you'd like to get your comment on air, leave us feedback on our website, gamerstavern.org. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash gamerstavern, or you can review us on iTunes or email me directly at abstruse at gamerstavern.org. The first is a review from Lars Technoviking, who I actually got to chat with a bit on Reddit in the Shadowrun subreddit. He writes, Daryl and Ross have a great dynamic in discussing all aspects of the topic at hand for each episode. Like many others, I first heard about this in relation to their Shadowrun episode. With only a few seemingly required hiccups in sound quality that every podcast seems to go through during their first few episodes... The quality of guests, content, and delivery has been nothing but top-notch since. If you enjoy tabletop gaming in any form, role-playing games, board games, or other such nerdetry, I highly recommend you give this podcast a shot. Thank you very, very much, Lars. And I actually, like I said, talked to Lars a bit on the Shadowrun subreddit, which I'm kind of a regular on. Uh, anyway, I, I think some of the things he's talking about are both are very, very early episodes, which, yeah, I was still learning what the hell I was doing. And he may also be talking about the Gamers Tavern Game Table, which is our new Shadowrun actual play podcast that comes out every Monday. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, please check that out. Uh, it's actually becoming pretty damn popular. I, I'm a little surprised it's taken off as much as it has. But yeah, thank you to all our fans and all our listeners. But yeah, those episodes are rough because it's first and foremost, it's you know six people getting on Skype to play a role-playing game. I'm kind of recording it almost as an afterthought. It was actually not supposed to be recorded at the beginning. So uh, thankfully, everyone did agree to have their recordings put online for all of us to enjoy and listen to and for me to go through and try to clean up. Let's see here. We also have some comments on our website. First up from Lee Langton, who writes about episode five, Horror in Gaming. Great getting caught up on the show. Love it. I just cannot believe you didn't mention one of the, in my humble opinion, best horror RPGs ever, 
Dread is amazing for setting up the tension and atmosphere with their use of the Jenga Tower for resolution. It's just a fantastic game and able to suspense and horror in an unusual and amazing way. Yeah, I pissed off at myself, and I think Ross kind of feels the same way that we completely spaced on Dread when recording that episode. Dread has come up many, many times in other podcasts, and I do believe on at least one recorder we mentioned that we accidentally snubbed it on this. It, it wasn't because of any ill malice or anything like that. It was just at that point in time, Ross hadn't played it. At that point in time, I hadn't played it. I, I still haven't had a chance to actually hands-on play the game. I've got, I've got the game now. I just don't own a Jenga tower at this point in time. But yeah, it, it wasn't intentional. We love the game. It is an amazing mechanic. It is a just great idea and concept. And yeah, it, it's a shame we left it out of the episode. I apologize to both fans of the game and to the designers it's a brilliant game definitely check it out if you like any sort of horror rpgs or if you like just the idea of building a lot of tension in your games um we also have a comment from regular facebook commenter the grumpy Celt, on our forgotten realms episode fun episode but i still hate fourth edition forgotten realms short sweet and to the point um i'm actually kind of meh about the whole thing uh they did some things well and some things not so well uh, it, it suffered a little from trying to be the marquee setting so they had to shoehorn the dragonborn and the warforged and the changelings and all that into the setting somehow and i thought they did a good job of shaking things up as much as i love forgotten realms I'm not that beholden to its canon. Like I said on that episode, I've only read the first like seven or eight Dritz novels. And I think I read one or two other books set in Forgotten Realms. But that was when I was a teenager. And that was like 20 years ago. And God knows how many gallons of bourbon since then. So I don't really remember that much about it. So I'm not attached to the setting as someone else maybe. Or as I am to something like, you know, Shadowrun. So that may color my opinion a little bit. We also got a lot of comments on the website about the Gamers Tavern game table. So, yeah, I'm really glad people are really liking it. Uh, the biggest question we get asked is, why did we go with 4th edition rather than the current 5th edition of Shadowrun? Uh, the 5th edition of Shadowrun came out uh, sometime last, uh, it was last summer, I believe, because I was at a con. It was last July because I was at RTX, I remember now. Because that's when my review went up on Any Cool News. So, yeah, I, I like 5th edition. Don't get me wrong. But there are a lot of factors that went into making this decision. First and foremost is that in Shadowrun, and a lot of longtime fans will know what I'm talking about, the core book isn't the game. <laughs> the core book, you can technically play out of it, but there's so much more to the Shadowrun world, especially in the game rules, that you're missing a lot if you just play out of the core rulebook because every single edition from first all the way into fifth because there's one coming out very soon uh i think it's called running gun but uh they have advanced rules for and these are the ones that are critical advanced rules for magic advanced rules for the matrix a book with a shitload of guns a book with a shitload of extra cyberware and bioware and the book with the alternate character creation rules if we'd gone with 5th edition, we'd have to house roll 
fucking everything almost because first and foremost there's no pixie race for pcs in fifth edition yet so there's no rave and because that's kind of core to his concept as being a pixie and just being a shadowrun fanboy in and of itself isn't nearly as fun as being a you know foot and a half tall shadowrun stereotype uh, as you'll see in some future episodes with some reactions from NPCs. <laughs> Sorry, we have a major NPC cameo who reacts to Rafe, and it's kind of fucking hilarious. Uh, anyway, on top of that, about probably a third of my of babysitter cyberware isn't in the fifth edition game at this point. The attention call processor. I don't think his bone lacing options in there yet. The Kevlar bone lacing. And there's just a lot of stuff that's just not in the game yet. I don't even know what the hell Reaver is, but most of that stuff isn't in the rules for fifth edition yet. I think some of uh, Malachi's cyberwares isn't in there. Some of the character options soul took aren't in there. So yeah, we just couldn't do the characters we wanted to do in fifth edition yet. Uh, the other reason is that most of us, aside from Kyle, Kyle came in in 5th edition, but all the rest of us know 4th edition pretty well. I've played in one campaign. I've run like two or three others in 4th edition. I've read almost all the books. Uh, Ross has played it very frequently. Brandon's played it very frequently. Cat Nine's played it frequently. Jeff Preston is a friggin' artist in 4th edition books, so he knows that pretty well. Kyle's pretty much the only one who doesn't have a lot of it, but he's picking up really quickly. So it's the edition that all of us were most comfortable with. And like I said, we were wanting to play Shadowrun first and foremost, and the recording thing came as kind of an after. Another reason why, it's not a big reason, but it is it does factor in, Gamers Tavern Game Table is currently sponsored by Hero Lab, the amazing award-winning character management software from Lone Wolf Development. Uh, uh, yeah, the software is amazing. It is one of the best character generators I have ever worked with in my life. But they don't have 5th edition Shadowrun yet. Uh, hopefully, it's supposed to come up within the next month or two, but it's just they don't have it yet so for the moment we're playing the Shadowrun game set in seattle in 2072 with fourth edition rules as the timeline advances when we get up to great overwatch division and all the events and stormfront and all that happen or if the campaign ends and we start a new one and you know the source books availability and all that we'll consider switching it or we may go with a completely different game altogether for game table that's all up in the air right now right now we're sticking with shadowrun fourth edition for at least the next several months so that's why um for the record, definitely check out Shadowrun 5th Edition. Catalyst Game Labs did an amazing job on it. That's about it for now. Uh, the Gamer's Tavern is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 license. The song Undead Blues by Unknown Henson is copyright 2006 used with permission. The song Insane by B. Shake is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 International license. Until next time, gamers, the tavern is closed.